Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Well, hello. Come right in. Oh, George, we've got company. This is Bill Goodwin speaking for Lever Brothers, makers of Swan, the new white floating soap that's pure as fine Castiles. And now, meet the people who live in the Burns house, George and Gracie. What is it, dear? A letter from our sponsor. Starting next week, our radio program will be on Monday nights. Oh, I knew they were going to change it. So it's Monday night, huh? Uh Uh-huh. You know that's the night Cecil B. DeMille has his radio theater. So I think we ought to do drama, too. Drama? Oh, sure. I'll bet Mr. DeMille will be plenty worried when he hears us. Yeah, yeah, he'll tear out hair by the handful. Yeah, and I... I pity the person he tears it from. Well, okay, don't worry We're not going to do dramatics Oh, but George, think of the great stories we can do The story of Mrs. Parkington The story of Mrs. Miniver The story of Maggie Ettinger Maggie Ettinger? Yeah, that's my beauty operator And does she know some stories? Gracie, uh, you may as well drop this thing right now I'm not a dramatic actor And I'm not going in for drama But you have a great talent for acting. Oh, come on. Let me hear you recite something from Shakespeare. Oh, go. Oh, please, George. Let me hear you do to be or not to be. That is the question. I don't know it. Well, I'll help you. Now, come on. To be or not to be. That is the... Well? Question? Oh, you're wonderful. Oh, Oh, George, that's grand. Shakespeare must have had you in mind when he wrote Hamlet. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) George... Everyone thinks we should do drama. Sure. Just so they can do their stuff. Well, forget it. It's not for me. Oh, George, don't say that. True, you're a great comedian. Great as Jack Benny. But you're also a fine actor like Charles Lawton. Oh, Gracie. Well, you're a combination Charles Lawton and Jack Benny. It it just so happens that your Lawton sticks out more than your Benny. (laughs) Forget it. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo. Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo is about to get dizzy and daffy in that or any order, such as the lovely price one will pay for admission into the world of George Burns and Gracie Allen, two vaudeville legends who moved their stupendous comedy act into radio and on the silver screen. And tonight, the Ballyhoo will witness what happens when they bring along the baggage of vaudeville 
vaudeville with them and unpack it into full effect inside a large mansion on the Paramount lot. That's right, direct from Norman Z. McLeod, we shall settle into 1935's Here Comes Cookie. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Gracie! 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 Hello? Uh, hello? Gracie! Hello? Oh, it's you, Papa! Hello! Gracie, what were you doing with that book under the bed? Well, somebody told me to read Dr. Jekyll and Hyde. Gracie, I'm not on the telephone. Operator! Operator, he hung up! Gracie, I'm here in this room, not on the phone! Well, it certainly is a small world. Come on, come on. Oh, George, I'm reading the most wonderful mystery. I know, Dr. Jekyll and Hyde. Well, I did that. Uh, you know, whenever I read a book, first I read the beginning, and then I read the ending, and then I start in the middle and read towards whichever way I like best. Come on, we've got business to attend to. Come on. I, Harrison Allen, party of the first part, transfer all my worldly possessions to my daughter, Gracie Allen, party of the second part. A party? Yeah, party of the second part agrees to turn back said possessions to party of the first part 60 days after date. Oh, that's why you all came in. We're having a party. Oh, that's awfully sweet of you to surprise me like that. Here, just sign this. Oh, all right. What's that? You signed Hilda. This is a legal document, and you've got to sign your right name. Oh, don't be a silly, Willie. You never sign your right name in a legal document. That's forgery. All right, just sign Gracie Allen, and I don't want to have any trouble with you. Yeah, oh, um, Gracie Allen, and I don't want to have any don't trouble. Don't sign, I don't want to have any trouble with you. Oh, you don't want to have any trouble with me, Look, huh? stand over there. Oh. Will you please sign this? Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. 1935 would be another year for Burns and Allen in radio and film carrying their Dumb Dora act that delighted so many before and would delight so many even more afterwards. It is a time before the domesticated love nest that was the Burns and Allen home on radio and a time when vaudeville was all but dead in the water. For this film shows that acts like George and Gracie could translate while others could not. There are so many other talented folks who could not even be identified casually today as their exposure dwindled to cameos and extras. What does Here Comes Cookie show us of the days before, and how does the madcap insanity in McLeod's speedy picture translate to today's whiz-bang films? To answer that, we have a return guest whose podcast, John of All Trades, would have been a tremendous place for many of the acts we saw today to spread the word on their talents. But more importantly, though, he is the man who doesn't know Carl Lafong, and if he did, he wouldn't tell you. Please welcome back to the show, John Ekstrom. God, I love your writing, Zach. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, no one can intro me like you. Yeah, no, that I, I have a specialty here. I'm the George Jessel of podcasting. <laughs> look at all my medals. <laughs> yeah, you're you're like Michael or Bruce Buffer, um, <laughs> which uh, which I very much appreciate. No, uh, we had such a good time talking about WC Fields. We did, and we would. You know, dive off into tangents about George and Gracie. So, I mean, it's only natural we got to do this one, which up until a couple of days ago, I hadn't seen ever. 
Really? This, yeah, so this no was joke. the first time. And so, but this wasn't <clears throat> your first Burns and Allen film, was it? Uh, no, I don't think so. But most of my Burns and Allen experience comes through the TV show. Yes. Because we had a ton of those like on VHS when I was growing up. And so I used to watch those with my dad. My favorite one is when uh, Gracie gets interviewed by Look Magazine and <laughs> claims that her husband beat up uh, the gangster Silky Thompson. Mm-hmm. And so Silky Thompson shows up at the house and by the end of it, he is, you know, <laughs> he's like doing household chores for her. Yep. <laughs> and I watched that episode over and over again. So like I... When I, when I came into this movie, I go, okay, everyone's going to be working for Gracie by the end of this movie mm-hmm. without knowing anything about it. Just knowing what I know about that character and that persona, I go, this is going to be a good time. Yeah. The, um, the radio show was my point of entry. We didn't get that. We didn't find, I didn't find a lot of the television shows until a little bit later, but um, specifically one episode of the show, which I, um, would I'll end up playing at some point on radio review is where she forms the housewives guild and forces George into signing a contract of where the, uh, the husbands are forced into submission. And it was like, what is this character? And, um, the, the, the magic of Gracie, I think is, I, I don't think there's a lot to compare it to today in the same way that she did it. I think that there have been like, predecessor or like successors that have captured the dizzy element of it but not yeah. like this this is illogic for the sake of logic <laughs> no and i mean we'll get into this more but i mean the the function of gracie on this movie is she's almost a commentary on the absurdity of the plot that her dad is trying to enact <laughs> and it's it only someone like her could unravel it that quickly yeah because I mean, what what he's trying to do, what he is scheming to do is just so nakedly a terrible idea Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, you know, you you need someone with great illogic to be able to just poke a hole in it so quickly and get everyone else like hopping from one foot to the other. It's remarkable. She's she's a force of nature in this movie. And for me, she functions as a commentary on the actual plot. And within this, we also have a gentleman who at this point in time was nothing more than a straight man, albeit though one of the finest straight men that ever existed, Mr. George Burns. And Certainly. the what's funny about talking about George Burns is that unlike Gracie, he has much more exposure, but that's because of his comeback in 74 with the Sunshine Boys and then right. playing God and then... Um, I do think there was a resurgence with Going in Style, the version that he did when they remade it, um, when Zach Braff remade the film with Michael Caine and Freeman and Alda, and or Arkin, sorry, not Alda. That, that would have been fun, though, if Alan Arkin <laughs> was in that movie. Um, Dude, that would have been endless, though. That would have been a slog where he's like, boy, this is great, isn't it? Just I, the way we're going in style, doing all these things, and the way you had, and it's like, God, shut up, Alan Alda. <laughs> Michael, are we going to rob that bank? Is that what you're telling me? Are we going to rob that bank? Oh, that's great. I cannot wait to rob that bank. You know, I never robbed a bank on MASH, but... It it never occurred to me to rob a bank before. And you guys, you just have this idea. And it's just... it's phenomenal and i i'm just i'm happy to be a part of it just, i mean what a team just have alan arkin fall in love with alan alda instead of <laughs> Anne margaret in that movie 
<laughs> no. Let's make oh, God. let's make this crazier. <laughs> yeah. What if Alan Arkin uh Alan Arkin goes, what does it stand for? I don't know. Argo fuck yourself. So. <laughs> and it's Which funny, it's like in that movie you did that one time, Alan. Now <laughs> yeah, that's the funny thing. You were nominated for another Oscar for that one. <laughs> but, yes, thank you for lampshading that further for me, Alan Alda. Please stop doing that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just gonna go ahead and keep doing it. I'm I'm kind of turned on like a motor. Um <laughs> just keep putt putt putting away. Now, we aren't here to talk about those Allens. We're here to talk about Gracie Allen, though. Um, now, for all that we've brought up front, we should talk about the origins of Burns and Allen as they exist. And we'll start with George because he gets first billing. <laughs> but, sure. Um, he was born in January 20th, 1896 in New York City as Nathan Birnbaum, nine of t- ninth of 12 children. Uh, to Dora Bluth and Eliza Birnbaum, who were also known as Louie and Lippy. <laughs> um, and okay. They they came to the U.S. from Kolbosowa, uh, Galicia, which is now Poland. And if I butchered that pronunciation, I apologize, but I'm 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 American trash, and. Um, this is uh, how George described it from his book, All My Best Friends. All of, almost all of us grew up poor. I grew up in Rivington Street on New York's Lower East Side with four brothers and seven sisters. We were so poor, I couldn't even afford to have my own dreams. When they invented the automobile, is the, is, I dreamed someday that I would be a car salesman. When I got done enough, I dreamed to be a used car salesman. There is only one rich family on our block. They lived in the building on the corner, and we knew they were rich because they had lace curtains on their windows. Sometimes I would get up early in the morning and take whatever little garbage we had out of our garbage cans and put it in theirs and put their garbage in ours because I wanted the neighbors to think we were doing well. <laughs> that Now, something to bring up. George Burns in his later years when he wrote all these books and quotes, because he was actually basically dictating to his ghostwriter, um, George had a tendency to embellish the truth um, and flat out lie. Um, but the legends around these are so much fun that it would be it, w- it would be it would be cheap of me to deprive you people of that. Um, when it does come to Gracie, though, he does get a little bit more sincere because Gracie was born, we don't know when. <laughs> Her birth year is uncertain and unknown. The most likely uh, birth year based on a 1901 census would be July 26, 1895. But this is what George had to say in Gracie, a love story. I never knew how old Gracie was. I never asked. The newspapers reported that she had been born in 1906, and then she was only 58 years old when she died in 1964. Maybe she was. When I met her in 1923, she could sing and she could dance and she was willing to work cheap. Who cared how old she was? I knew she was born in San Francisco just after the turn of the century. She often said that her birth certificate had been destroyed in the Great Earthquake of 1906. Gracie always thought that there was a funny story in that. All the glamour girls in Hollywood would lie about their age and claimed on their birth certificates that they had been <laughs> that their birth certificates had been destroyed. She was a great comedian and hers had actually been destroyed. <laughs> So there's not a certainty as to when Gracie was born. What we do know, though, is that she had a father named George Allen, who was a well-known song and dance man known for Irish clog and minstrel. 
um, who worked up and down the West Coast, and her mother was Margaret Teresa Allen, later Margaret Pigeon when she remarried, or as she was known to the family, Pidgey. Uh, she had four sibling sisters, Pearl, Bessie, and Hazel. Um, and Gracie began her professional career in an Irish dancing act with them. George, meanwhile, got his professional start with the Pee Wee Quartet at the age of seven. Uh, this consisted of him being the lead singer and business manager, Morty Weinberger as the tenor, his brother Hersh- Heshi uh, as the baritone, and a kid named Toda sang bass. <laughs> uh, weird thing on street, co- weird thing was on street corners outside of saloons where they would sing um, on the streetcars and ferry boats, and they would uh, go for throw money. So you'd throw money at the people singing. Uh, but what they didn't realize is that they weren't throwing the money because they wanted them to sing. They were throwing the money because they wanted them to stop singing. <laughs> so. <laughs> we get a sense of George desperate to be in show business early on. Um, this is something that he would allude to all those years later in those specials. And, I mean, I don't know, John. Actually, this is a question I never bothered to ask. Have you ever heard Burns' stand-up before the albums that he did in the 70s and 80s? Uh, you know, no, I haven't, actually. Um, but, I mean, I'm... It's one of those things where you're sort of familiar with them through osmosis. Yeah. You know, like just cultural osmosis. You'll you'll catch a snippet of him, you know, when they're doing a profile on him or if you're watching some history of commentary documentary. And the thing that always stuck out to me about George Burns, and I mean, this is true during the, the run of the TV show because there'd be interstitials where George would just uh, directly address the audience and do material. And... His rhythm, his cadence was always just something remarkable to me. He would, he would stop. He would do the setup. There would be a pause, a take from the cigar, mm-hmm. punchline. Yep. And he knew exactly where the laughs were, and he could use that cigar almost like another character. Yep. And he would use and it as a breaking point, too. <clears throat> like after the punchline, you take a, take a hit out of the cigar while the laugh is going on, and then that's your yeah. transition, which he used that to great effect. Those, um, uh, those, there's an album called An Evening with George Burns, which he did live at the Schubert Theater just before Jack's death because Jack introduces him. And uh, you have him kind of going through his life in show business in anecdotal form. And the plot throughout the entire album is him trying to find an opening song (laughs) (laughs) and he'll sing a few bars of an opening song and he'll go, wait, 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 no, 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 no. That's a good middle song, but it's not a good finish or it's not a, it's a good finish, but it's not a good opener. Um, And it's an excuse for him to do his singing, which the singing would be a constant part of the Burns and Allen radio and TV show. Um, which is an audience might even know that you can find albums of Burns singing in his seventies and eighties. And I like them. They're fun. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's, he's not going to be mistaken for, you know, Nat King Cole or something, (laughs) but you know, he's, he's not exactly what you would call, you know, this silky voiced crooner, (laughs) but I love a lot of singers who are not great technical singers. Mm -hmm. Like I, as someone who whose favorite and primary preoccupation is punk rock, a lot of those guys ain't the best singers, 
But when you hear like, okay, so there was a movie I'm sure you're familiar with called 18 again that George Burns did in the 80s. (laughs) Of course I'm familiar with 18 again. (laughs) And in that he sings the song 18 again. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that movie, I I got a lot of problems with that movie. I've seen it many, many times. Oh, it's, 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 it's ill put together. (laughs) It's yeah. There's just a lot of misfires and you know, the climactic scene is, is a track race um, between Charlie Schlotter and uh, that other guy. But um, listening to him sing 18 again is, is like the warmest soap and water feeling in that entire movie Mm. where you go, here, here he is, just this charming entertainer with full command of his abilities and knows the extent to which his abilities sort of like where the ceiling is. And he meets, he, he raises to that level every single time. And that is fun to watch when you've got a performer who knows how to perform and is in the business of show. Mm-hmm. Watching them do their craft is one of the most fun things you can do. There's a there's a there's there's a terminology that they use for him on the radio show whenever he'd get to sing even just a teeny bit. It was sugar throat burns. That would that be that <laughs> the George sugar throat burns, and uh, they 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 would make it a uh, through line throughout the show's history. Those later albums, like I like the one he did with Bobby Vinton, where it's 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 clearly a guy who knows how to sing and clearly a guy who knows how to talk sing and do that. That that drawn out, but he does sing a song called Gracie, which is about his love for Gracie. Uh, so there's like a nice sentimentality to it. Sure. Part of well, that. Yo, yo, go ahead. It, it reminds me of uh, as you were describing that. There was a sketch that uh, on SNL that Justin Timberlake and Andy Samberg did, where they're they're playing like like immigrants coming over from Europe, mm-hmm. and it, it's sort of indeterminate where they're from, but they're talking about what they're going to do and how they're going to be singers. And it's like, they're, you know, they're, they're basically doing a play on them being Justin Timberlake and Andy Samberg. And so it's like, uh, are they good singers? And Justin Timberlake's like, Oh yes, they are great singers. Well, what about the other guy? And Andy Samberg goes, eh, he's okay. <laughs> and so like, you know, he, he sort of knows that. So you've got Bobby Vinson and George Burns, and it's that kind of dynamic when you put them together. Cause you know, Andy Samberg, an incredible performer. And when he sings, when he does anything, he, he knows the, the great rhythms to hit, but he's not a great technical singer. Right. Yeah. It's, I think that that's, that's something that if you can find a way to make a niche in that, like you've, you, you've, you've, you've cornered a market that I think most people would take for granted today with the, with the emergence of YouTube and people being able to do that on a daily basis for free. Like George made a career out of it. Part, part of a career, like the other part of it was right. the acting in the films, but like that, that became its own little industry. And, but that all starts with all that training in vaudeville Um, he was part of pretty much any act he could get his hands on because he wanted to be in show business. He worked with a trained seal at one point. We have a photograph of that. That's just (laughs) all widely known. Um, he, uh, he, he went under the name Maurice Valenti, if you believe his stand-up act. Um, he did a dance act with Hermosa Jones, whose real name was Hannah Siegel, who he married for 26 weeks as her family would not let them go on tour until she was married. Then they divorced after 26 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so that was his first wife. 
Um, he was known as he he was Brown of Brown and Williams, but not the Brown and Williams from before Brown and Williams when they switched out Brown and Williams. And it was a song and dance act that by the time Burns got to it, they were dancing on roller skates. So va- vaudeville, as we're going to talk about in this uh, plot breakdown, it, it's anything you can do anything in vaudeville so long as you can keep your act to three to five minutes, depending on what the theater is giving you. And this is like George is striving for this. And the last real act he does before he joins with Gracie is an impressionist act with Billy Lorraine called the two Broadway thieves. Um, and he leaves Billy in 1923 because he meets Gracie. Um, Gracie leading up to her time in vaudeville, um, her big act break would be the four Colleen's with her sisters, but before that, she had a lot of terrible incidents happen to her as a child that would plague her self-image for years. Um, uh, Gracie, A Love Story, the book that George quote-unquote wrote, um, tells some stories about this. And one of them was that when she was about a year and a half, she reached up to the stove and poured down a poured a large coffee pot of boiling tea on her arm. Her left arm and her shoulder were scalded badly and there was thought for a while that they would have to amputate the arm. Uh, they finally saved it, but the, it was terribly scarred, and she could never completely straighten it out. And she was always embarrassed about the scar. She never wore anything but a long sleeve dress or full blouses or full-length uh, full length clothes. Um, and then when the Dumb Dora act that they did uh, became so successful, other people that tried to replicate it were wearing her clothing. But they were doing it to match her. They didn't realize that she was doing it to cover up scarring. Um, And as far as straightening it out, uh, Gracie's relatives had told George that before she met him that she would use to try to strengthen her arm by hitting a punching bag. Um, And Gracie was a tiny petite lady. So Mm -hmm. uh, George said, imagine Gracie hitting a punching bag. I bet the bag won. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, additionally, uh, she had a... um, uh, another incident where she knocked over a glass storm lamp and several tiny shards of glass flew into her eye. Doctors got them all or most of them out, um, but she lost some sight and had limited vision for the rest of her life. She also suffered from terrible migraine headaches. No one ever knew about migraines at that point in time, except that they were terrible. And George always speculated that the injury to the eye might have had something to do with the migraines going forward in her life. Um, and despite all of this, she perseveres. She does the four Colleen's act with her sisters. Then she joins an act with them with a man named Larry Riley and is paid $22 a week for a speaking part in this dramatic act where she and her sisters played the heroines and Larry played the hero. It was like an Irish dramatic act. Um, the sisters left the act with Gracie left alone and Larry in jealousy over better notices of the girls changed the billing on the name to just Larry Riley, so Gracie quit because <laughs> she she realized her worth, which is great. And yeah. at this time, she meets a songwriter named Benny Ryan, but her life is about to change because she meets George Burns, and George is looking for a new partner. The way that the, the legend goes is that Burns wrote and comprised this act based off of several different jokes that he bought because you could buy jokes at that point. 
Um, and frankly, you probably could still do that today. I'm sure stand-ups buy jokes from others from other writers constantly. Still, um, at this time, it was very common. Um, people like Al Bozberg made a living off of this. He's like one of the most legendary writers that ever existed in the medium of film or vaudeville. And uh, the act would have consisted of George delivering the funny lines and Gracie being the straight woman. But <laughs> that didn't work, so they switched it. And because of Gracie's voice and her ability to do that kind of naive girl, it worked like gangbusters. Um, that, that put them on the map. And at this and at, at this time, they're being able to travel as a big time vaudeville act. At a certain point, J- they meet Jack Benny, uh, who would end up da- who was uh, actually dating uh, Mary Kelly, Gracie's roommate. Uh, Mary Kelly would become. She had a very tragic life and would end up being utilized on Burns and Allen's program a lot because Mary was needing the money. Um, for people who don't know who Mary Kelly is by just the name. You would recognize her as Bubbles from the early Burns Now and radio programs. And she was also on Jack's program as whenever they needed a fat lady because she ballooned up, um, mm-hmm. mostly from alcohol and lack of self-care. Um, and the, the, the way that the friendship between Benny and Burns worked in particular, B- Benny was instrumental, I think, in helping George see the act's worth past the 1930s. But getting them into film was interesting because they worked from 1923 up to 1929, and they were about to go on tour in London, and they stopped over in New York at the Astoria Studios where they made a filmed version of their act Lamb Chops for Vitaphone Shorts, which at the time was providing the earliest forms of sound film before they made The Jazz Singer. Prior to the jazz singer, Vitaphone, headed by Sam, like the really the effort was headed by Sam Warner of Warner Brothers, were testing out the technology by bringing in acts that were playing New York to come down to the Astoria Studios and do a filmed version of their act. Uh, um, The availability of these is actually pretty staggering thanks to uh, the work of other restorationists. The jazz singer DVD has a series of these available. And what you're watching is people digging their own graves because vaudeville was cheap, affordable live entertainment that when films came around, basically made them obsolete. (laughs) Yeah. And if you could not carry over into that, you were dead in the water. There are great acts that I've seen involving a duck. There are great acts I've seen involving roller skates. In one of those shorts, you can see baby Rose Marie before she joined the Dick, Dick Van Dyke show <laughs> um, wow. because she was a child entertainer um, early, early on in her career. Um, so Paramount sees and likes these shorts and signs them to four shorts at $3,500 each. And then they, at the same time, as they're getting all these deals in England, they make their first professional appearance to promote, to promote their tour on radio in the UK. When they come back, they become a hit both with those Vitaphone shorts and with radio because Eddie Cantor says, George, I want to use Gracie on the show, but I don't want you. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie wants to be the George in this scenario. So George agrees. If only if Eddie will use the material that he wrote himself She's a smash, but people recognize that George is 
essential to the act because something that should be discussed is that George knows how to deliver what Gracie needs to perform properly. It doesn't always work with other people. Um, and a lot of that I think has to do with George's ability to be dis in disbelief. <laughs> yeah, George. So, I mean, in terms of pro wrestling, which is like my favorite thing, and you, you could draw that, draw a straight line between vaudeville and pro wrestling. One of the things George is best at is selling. Like George yes. can, can sell a joke. And, you know, he, in many ways, George is the audience surrogate. And if, if Gracie's up there, there's, I mean, George almost like grounds the act um, by becoming the, the audience surrogate. Whereas if, if Gracie is bouncing this directly off the audience, it's not going to work. She needs to triangulate it off of George for it to land better with the audience. And so George, I mean, you'll hear wrestlers talk about you're only as good as your dance partner here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you could have the coolest moves in the world. If someone's not selling it properly, then the act is going to fall flat, which is exactly what you're alluding to. Yeah. And uh, there's something that is interesting about the radio shows in particular, because you could one, you're removing the veneer of the visual. We're just focusing on the way the dialogue works. When George and Gracie interact especially in the years when they became a sitcom couple, because prior to that, they would just kind of go off of the, well, we're dating or she's just our coworker or whatever. Like she's my vaudeville partner. You hear the love George has for Gracie to the point of absolute patience. When you put her in a room with anyone else, like let's say you have Cary Grant who was on the show at one point or uh, William Powell, the, the the response from them is shock. Burns's acceptance. <laughs> it's, he's yeah, it, and and I, I don't want to say it's resignation, but it, Burns is almost always taking a minute to reorient his entire worldview around whatever Gracie said, and and it's not he's not annoyed by it. He he knows it's fruitless to fight it. Yeah. It's it's more like okay, give me a second here. Okay, I got where she's coming from, and now this is the new reality. Yeah, and I think it was it's been best point out by Burns where he said that uh, the the reason Gracie's Gracie's act work is because Gracie made sense to Gracie, mm-hmm. and that yeah. in itself I think is the 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 crux of how one describes Gracie Allen. And the thing is, even as we're going to be talking about the plot here in a second, we're not going to do justice to the way Gracie delivers this. You can, oh, you, can no. you can say the lines, but it takes her performance to sell that un- unquestionably. And I feel like one of the benefits of Here Comes Cookie along with their other films that they did together is you do get the last bastion of vaudeville because most of the films they are in, they don't change the act or even change the plot um, or to make them actual characters. You, you know they are George and Gracie. That's what they are. The closest that I have seen them incorporating themselves in the plot is a movie called Love in Bloom, which carries the song Here Comes Cookie, for which this film is titled after. Um, mm. And possibly college swing because they do make Gracie the descend the last descendant of this f- 
family that will inherit the college. And the, uh, the movie's just as insane as the movie we're going to talk about today um, with the added benefit of Bob Hope uh, and Martha Ray running around. Mm. Um, now, their film career really kicks off with the big broadcast of 1932. Um and it moves them along at a nice speed, and they uh, appear with W.C. Fields in several ventures, including Six of a Kind and International House. International House, by the way, is a movie that kind of pre-calls the, pan- the way the pandemic worked for us the last two years, because there's a point of actual, there's an actual uh, quarantine in that movie that then involves Bella Lugosi trying to get back into that hotel. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, W.C. Fields is just flying a flying machine because, of course, he is. He always flew flying machines. <laughs> Why wouldn't he be? How many How many times has W.C. Fields been a pilot in a movie? I don't know the exact number of this. <laughs> I, it's more than I can count because mm-hmm. I, you know, I'd have to actually go back and watch them in a row. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's certainly plenty. It's 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 so much so that like whenever I watch the big broadcast in 1938, which for several reasons, one of them is obviously Bob Hope's big break. But when I watch him taking off from a golf course in a golf cart that can fly somehow and then just like getting indignant towards a goose flying by, I'm just like, this is the magic <laughs> of movies. This is this is what movies were made to do. They weren't made to do anything else. They were made for this and Thanos, and that's <laughs> like right. the, the, in terms of special effects. I guess I'd say it's not cinema, but <laughs> well, one one of the things, and not not to take this in too much of a blue direction, but one of the first things that that when people realized you could film something, what they wanted people to do was take their clothes off. So I would add that as a third thing. Oh yeah, very much for, so. for the for the purpose of movies, where it's like, oh man, so we could have naked people that you could just call up and see on demand, like, no, I mean, more or less on demand, you know, however much, however frequently you could go to the Nickelodeon or whatever. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and you could see that, but if you, you know, if you ever read like a history of erotica or pornography or whatever, mm-hmm. it was one of the very first things that film was ever used for. And it makes perfect sense. You want to see people do cool things. You want to see the, the limits of, or you want to see human limits expanded and surpassed. Yeah. And you want to see naked people. Like yeah. that's essentially what it comes down to. Yeah. It, uh, that's why the pre-code era is such a fun little experimentation. Cause occasionally you do get the, the nudity in question and at yeah. other points you are just watching an excuse to watch women in lingerie. And it's, right. it's very like, it's a very interesting period in film and, and the, the stories get seedier and seedier by the second it's, it's well, and, Crazy. What's funny, Zach, about the Hayes Code is I, I'm interested in learning about the Hayes Code mm-hmm. and learning uh, about its impact and you know what it did in terms of art. But the films under the Hayes Code are all like they're pretty dull in a lot of cases because there there are so many things. I mean, we were talking about Alan Alda. Mm-hmm. There was an episode of Mash I remember where they, they wanted to show this film that had been banned. And the reason it had been banned or, you know, was, was like this real subversive movie is because they said the word virgin and you go, really? Like, that's it. It's the, like, that's what everyone was waiting for. That was the big payoff. And, you know, under, under that time you go, man, everyone was very, very repressed. That's tough. Yeah. It's, I, 
You know what's funny? The um, a friend of the show, uh, the All the Best Lines podcast, did Nightmare Alley recently, and the Nightmare Alley, which obviously has been remade recently, the ending of the nineteen forty seven version of Nightmare Alley is so last minute because it has to end on a optimistic note, right? Because of the code, and I've been brought to the point of like, you know, considering how far they were able to go. With those considerations in mind, the movie is pretty damn perfect, even though it has that very rushed ending. It's almost like I don't I don't think it's an allowance for the film to be like given a pass, but I do feel like it's a consideration that once you make it, you understand you respect how dark it is allowed to go. Pre-code yeah. films, like I think when I rewatched Three on the Match recently with um uh Joan Blondell. Uh, my my jaw was dropping because I had forgotten how that film ends, and it ends dark. It ends with a woman just flat out jumping out the window because she's being held hostage by gangsters, and she just hits that fucking pavement. It's not even just sexuality; it's violence. Like yeah. there are things that these films possess that the others don't, and I think that, especially when you're talking about a comedy in particular. The the neutering that happens mostly becomes the sexual content, and you can watch it in the Marx Brothers because once they leave Paramount, the code starts really taking effect. When they go over to MGM, there's still sexual innuendo, but it's like it's pulled back, and that yeah. has to be one of the many things that Thalberg had to consider when he brought the brothers over to MGM. Um, Gracie and George, though, their act has kind of always been family friendly. It never oh, yeah. ri- it doesn't really fall into that risk. And the the film that we're talking about in particular, the most scandalous it gets is with this Ramon character and that, that right. and even that is like such a such a throwaway plot point <laughs> that it's kind of it, irrelevant. It's um, pretty muted, yes. Yeah, but it but it that would have been your pre <sighs> that would have been your pre-code plot then stuffed into this into this adventure. Um, now, here's the point where we're going to start talking about Here Comes Cookie. Now, full disclosure to the audience, there isn't a lot of production information on this film. Um, I tried. I really fucking tried. <laughs> um, I found some Variety articles to trace some of the production. From July 5th, 1935, we have new BNA title from Daily Variety. Latest title for current Burns and Allen feature at Paramount is Here Comes Cookie. Changeover has been made from the title Soup to Nuts. Uh, an even dozen vaude acts, vaudeville acts have been signed for the picture, including Cal Morris and the Buccaneers. Now, you might be asking, who are Cal Morris and the Buccaneers? Um, who is Jack Powell? Who is, who is anybody in this movie? And the answer is, I don't know either. <laughs> We talked about vaudeville and these people doing these Vitaphone shorts and effectively digging their own graves. They also kind of basically assured their own obscurity because this film uses vaudeville acts as set dressing. It doesn't yeah, use it, them as um, characters. <laughs> that's a really good way of putting it, set dressing, because at any given moment, you you can go into another room and you don't know what you're going to see. And that is... I mean, those are elements that are really fun. And as you were kindly enough to gift me a DVD copy of this. Yeah. As I was reading it, even on the cover of the DVD, which I think is behind you. Yep. 
Um, it says George Burns, Gracie Allen, and 12 vaudeville acts. Yes. And you go, who are these 12 people? They never bothered to tell you. Well, we and have go, their names. That's the thing. We do have their names. But looking into what the, who they are and identifying them by the people that are on screen, right? it was tricky. I found two. I found two of them. <laughs> two out of 12? Two out of 12 ain't bad, especially when nobody documents shit. This please, is, please tell me one of them is the drummer. Yes, I do have okay, the drummer. We, I have we, some. Got I mean, we will talk about that because yeah. that that's show stopping. That's that's um that's a man who actually was instrumental in in uh working with uh, working with early up and comers like Buddy Rich, who is a very oh, wow. well known drummer. Um, now I will read from George Burns's book Gracia Love Story regarding Here Comes Cookie. Because there are some sections about it, um, there has been knowledge that I was brought up, brought to. I think in an interview that this is his favorite of the films that they did together, um, and I think if that is the case, it makes sense because this is not only him working with his wife, but also this is a very vaudeville movie. And George, for all the success that he had in life, always fondly remembered vaudeville. The if you believe legend. Jack Benny would never really talk about the past except with George about vaudeville. So like, that's what it meant to them. It was their, it, it was their boot camp. Um, from here we have in page 199 of the book, the second thing Gracie objected to, uh, as far as her film career was singing the song, looky, 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 here comes cookie in the 1935 Paramount film. Here comes cookie. The premise of this picture was that Gracie's millionaire father wanted her to pretend that the family had lost all its money so that a Spanish fortune hunter would lose interest in Gracie's sister. Um, the film opens with the butler discovering Gracie cowering under her bed because she explains, somebody told me to read Dr. Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's easy to understand why Gracie thought this song was too silly for her to sing. It certainly would have ruined a class picture like this one, but I thought it was a pretty good song. I told her to I told I talked her into singing it and it became a popular hit. Unfortunately, it's not too popular now. This is where George is getting his facts mixed wrong because "Looky, Looky, Looky, Here Comes Cookie" is not sung in this film, unless this is a deleted scene. Uh, yeah, I was thinking the same thing as you were describing that. I'm like, I don't remember her doing a musical number. Like, yeah, I I had to double check and back check. That's that's Love and Bloom. He's remembering Love and Bloom. I think that. He's misremembering it because the title of the song and the title of the film right. are the same. Um, yeah, that makes sense. But, um, you know, he he did say this, and I think it's very astute. We had no difficulty making a successful transition to feature films. I was just as popular in full-length movies as I'd been in vaudeville and on radio. Gracie Allen is at her best in Here Comes Cookie, said a New York critic about us. Um, and this is kind of where the communication stops on it. Um, and I, you know, I wish that this film had a larger production history because of the vaudeville acts, but also that this is another example of Norman Z. McLeod, who we talked about with It's a Gift. Um, we're treated again to his speedy precision in film. Yeah. And, and I think that it works well for Gracie's mind. The way Gracie's mind is supposed to work matches very well with McLeod. Um, I, I would agree with you on that. And it was, it was nice because it, this film had a very zippy rhythm to it. Mm -hmm. And it, it, first of all, it's 68 minutes long 
And so, you, you know, you're not, you're not sitting in there for some two and a half hour Judd Apatow slog <laughs> where, where, you know, it's, it's bloated it just with all this improvisation. No, it, it's there, man. And there are some real set pieces in this thing where you go in the hands of a lesser director, this thing loses some of its punch. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really liked the quick cuts. I really liked the camera work. I liked the staging. The blocking in this movie is really, really something. And it's complex too. Yeah. This is not, it, this is, I looked at this from a director's lens and got, went like, I give up. I just, <laughs> I threw up my hands. I was just like, no, 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 can't do it. It can't do it. Yeah. That's, that's why I admire um, action film directors, but it's also why I admire musical directors because they oh are dealing God, yes. with every single fucking thing that you're supposed to and somehow making it look effortless. And like, I mean, like a recent example was West Side Story, the Spielberg True. version that went out. I'm just like, this is why he's the best because <laughs> I'm not, I, you, you don't, I'm not even going to try. And this is where a lot of that, the complexities that can be allowed in a motion picture, I think are not best exemplified by this film, but this is a good teaching yeah. tool about blocking, which Spielberg is very known for. Like his blocking is superb. Well, there's a scene we'll get to where I'm going to compare McLeod to Walter Hill. <gasps> and, um, and, and so we'll, we'll talk about that, but at, at that, I mean, just, just sitting down to watch this, I'm going, man, this was 1935 where he has this level of command over the camera and the camera's capabilities, because mm-hmm. the film looks amazing. Uh, you know, it's it's a gift. I would say its triumph is in something like set design. Yeah, where where you can kind of understand that the 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 set is arranged to maximize the impact of each gag, and then he puts the camera there. This, on the other hand, is a triumph in directing uh, actors and action. Yeah. And what's funny is, is that these are, according to sources that I found, like within just like searching, they it's all referred to as a low budget feature. This is a low, huh. but this is a low budget. This is a programmer by comparison. And I guess at this point, we just talk about this film. We open up on, we open up on a rich man, <laughs> a grumpy having, rich man, having having the most lovely dream, the most loveliest dream, the best dream. He's retiring. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> he looked like he should have retired uh, a bit ago, too. Oh yeah, no he 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 definitely has the look of a man that is just he's done. He's retired. I'm going to leave to I'm leaving the Allen business. <laughs> By the way, there's no effort to change anybody's names really. Like if anything, <laughs> they're working around George and Gracie. the The family's name is the Allen family. Um, Harrison Allen is who we're referring to. Um, he has retired to give us, uh, give himself a chance to relax and go back to his boyhood home and to spend more time in making sure that his daughters, Phyllis and Gracie marry well. But then his dream is interrupted by his daughter, Phyllis, (laughs) over his head which i love i love when i love when 
they're interacting with the dream. I love, and this one in particular works very well, where Phyllis is going like, you you don't you don't care about you you don't care about my love for Raymond, and he goes, Raymond is after your money, and uh, Raymond basically verifies this by going, sure, I love your daughter, I love her for her money. <laughs> There's no attempt to make this plot any more complex or subtle than it is. It's it's very on the nose fortune hunter <laughs> oh it is uh there's the thinnest clothesline upon which you can hang the action yep and and th- and that's that's fine like we, we get what's happening yeah we we need this to get the instigator for a plot so you know harrison wakes up in a in a in a fucking daze thinking that all of this has actually happened and he calls <laughs> over bots uh, the <laughs> bots the uh the butler. By the way, Harrison is played by George Barbier, a character actor of the era, um, who pe- appeared in over eighty eight films. And we have Andrew Toomey's uh playing Bots, who I think Bots is the secret hero of this film, or the secret like the secret weapon, because he, as we're gonna find out, he slowly descends into the madness. <laughs> oh, he steals the fucking show, man. Yeah. And- um, he, he was the character I was immediately drawn to. And I go, you've got to be an old vaudeville guy. I didn't look it up. Um, I mean, I, what, what do you know about the guy playing bots? Um, he was originally from Ashta, Ashtabula, Ohio. <laughs> Try mm. saying Ashtabula five times fast while drinking a glass of water. He was in vaudeville as a comic. He appeared, uh, in a headlining act opening for the Kansas city Orpheum theater. He then went over to Broadway comedies beginning in 1917 with Miss 1917, which was a review. Uh, he followed it up with Poor Little Ritz Girl, Tiptoes, and the Ziegfeld Follies of both 22 and 27. Um, his film career lasted all the way up into 1956 with a film called The Go-Getter. Um, you know, he when I look at his filmography right now, we have him in Here Comes Trouble. Um, we have him in... The Devil is a Sissy as an uncredited policeman. So not only was he starring in films, but he was also just appearing in uncredited roles wherever he could get them. Um, I think the the most artsiest of his films uh, would be the film Easy Living, directed by Mitch Lyson with a script by Preston Sturgis. So I, I people have heard of that film in particular. Um, and... Uh, I think that his timing, his his gift is similar to George. He knows how to react while also oh. inhabiting a character, which George in this film doesn't really inhabit a character. Not um, so much. It's George Burns doing George Burns. Yes. But what, I mean, and you could make that argument that that's what George Burns is always doing when he's acting. Yes. Which is, is fine. I mean, you can make that arg- argument about a lot of people who have presence. Um, he, and, and that, did you ever see, fine. did you ever see going in style? That's the closest that I saw to him actually trying to inhabit a character. No, he, I did not. He's very, um, for majority of the film, he's very cold. Mm, and wow. that movie is a very cold movie. Like the, the, the remake that Braff did, I enjoy it, but it's not, I, I will readily admit that it's not the same movie. Um, and right. I think part of it is, is that Burns is very, set upon the decisions in these films that he does with Gracie. He is very aware of his place. He's there to facilitate Gracie, provide the material for Gracie and to the writers who need it. 
Um, and the, I think that his gift here is his anger, his angry energy, <laughs> because this is a, the acting that George does is that normally by the time this act had been established, the anger is subsiding a little bit on radio. It's still there, but like, especially by the time you get to the sitcom era, it's like been domesticated. He's now right. settled into his life with Gracie. He knows exactly what this is supposed to be. But in this, he is able to respond with absolute shock and disbelief. And the first bit of shock that he gets is that Harrison calls him in to drop a contract to gather two hobos as witnesses, along with a policeman and a fireman, to basically say, I'm, sh- I'm giving all of my money to Gracie for 60 days so that... I can see if Phyllis and Raymond are actually going to be a happy couple, if Raymond actually wants my daughter or if he's just after her money. And they call they they call out to Gracie to go and sign the contract, and that's where we get her entrance from under the bed. Well, before you do that, man, okay, yeah. so what are, two things I have about watching this for the first time. George Burns comes on screen. And I, I mean, this was 1935. You said he was born in 1896. So he's not even like 30 years old at this point. Right. Yeah. But immediately, you know, it's George Burns, even when he was like a hundred <laughs> years old. Like he, He's like LeBron James in that he always looks exactly the same. Yeah. Or Larry King. Never changed. Right. Not once. <laughs> yeah. He sounds the same. He looks the same. He has the exact same energy every time. He comes into a room. He's George Burns all day and all night. Yeah. No matter what. And I'm like, are you 29 years old or are you 59? It doesn't really matter. No, no. Because you're you're still George Burns. And as soon as he came on, I go, he didn't even say anything. I go, that's George Burns. Yeah. And so, and then they go over some newspaper headlines and- Oh, I I took snapshots of these because they are great. Well- (laughs) One of them is the one that I noted was Gracie runs over fat man. <laughs> and by the way, I, I appreciate the bluntness of headline writers in the 1930s. <laughs> Just Gracie runs over fat man, like unnamed, but says she didn't have enough gas to drive around. <laughs> and dude, like one of the things we do on this is we connect the, you know, the, the sensibility of the time to modern sensibility. That's a, that's like a yo mama joke. Yeah. That's a yo mama. Like, so fat joke. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, this guy was so fat, Gracie didn't even have enough uh, gas to drive around him. And at the same yeah. time, it establishes the logical, illogic, uh, logical, illogic of Gracie in text yeah. form. You understand Gracie's character without having even met her yet. The other one is Gracie Allen invents portable automobile. You press a button and the automobile folds up into the rumble seat. <laughs> Which I would, yeah. I'm trying to picture the the mechanics of how it. It's like an Iron Man. It's got to be an Iron Man suit. It's it's just like that briefcase <laughs> that Iron Man holds in Iron Man Two when he's on the speedway and then yeah. he gets the whole uniform. That's what it is. Gracie Allen made the Iron Man suit before Tony Stark. <laughs> oh yeah, no, Gracie figured out nanotechnology before all of us, and that only fits. That that um, that would make complete and utter sense if she actually stumbled upon nanotechnology. <laughs> And then, okay, so you mentioned we meet Gracie. She emerges from under the bed and answers the phone Mm -hmm. with an energy that this movie has not had yet. Yeah. 
uh, immediately she drops an element of chaos into this where they're, they're looking for her, they're calling for her, and she emerges from under the bed with an intensity that is, is unmatched by anyone. And so as I was watching this, I thought, you know, I could picture any number of great comedians from any period making that their entrance and using this as the inspiration. Yeah. Right. Where, you know, how are we going to start this scene? It's a real improv kind of sensibility and openings are hard. Yeah. How, how do we get to meet someone the first time? What's the most interesting way we can meet someone? And it's Gracie climbing out from under the bed and immediately answering the phone and just that hasn't been ringing by the way. (laughs) Exactly. Um, (laughs) Responding to someone talking to her going, this must be on the phone. (laughs) And I, I could picture everyone from Chris Farley to Amy Poehler yeah. to Ellie Kemper doing that. That's an SNL. That's an SNL thing. That is definitely an SNL trait where you would have well, the unexpected occur within that sketch setting. Exactly. Or you could picture like Ellie Kemper doing something like that in an early season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And here's something that I, I don't know if you noticed this. I mean, because we'll we'll kind of talk about it because the plot is episodic, even though there is a through line. Most right. of it is sketch based. Yeah. And I love that you brought up SNL luminaries like that, because to me, the some of the best SNL films that have existed have been the ones that carry on the sketch format, but find yes. a, but find a through line that works um, like I like Coneheads. But Coneheads, I has, love Coneheads, dude. Yeah, it, I love Coneheads. It, it, but it, it, but it has that same thing where it has a through line, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of sketch involved. There's a lot of sketch based comedy. Wayne's World, I think, is the cream of the crop example of this. Of course. Um, and even non SNL films with SNL luminaries like Austin Powers. Austin Powers, that first one is very episodic before <laughs> we really get into the third act. Um, well, well, and and in Austin Powers, it's even punctuated. By them doing those laugh-in style interstitials. Yes, yes. We're where, splitting so, up the time. <laughs> exactly. And it'll end on like a big joke. You know, it'll end on, you know, like the the Swedish-made penis enlarger pump. And then it'll cut to them all go-go dancing. And then all of a sudden it's Austin and uh, whatever. Elizabeth Hurley, yeah. Oh, but yeah, Vanessa. Yeah, Vanessa. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, Miss Kensington. Yes, Miss Kensington. Um, uh, on the airplane, and then it ends with him going, you know, do I make you horny on that rotating bed? And then we're back to the go-go dancers. Yep. And and so with this, like, scenes will just fade out as soon as they're done. And, like, they're connected. They're, you know, they're, they're plot-driven, and they, they are doing some, a lot of times, expository work in terms of driving the plot forward. But this scene is over. We're just going to fade out, and then we fade back in to the next scene. Yeah. And... In this particular one, she's under the bed because somebody told her to read Dr. Jekyll and Hyde. Because, of course. These are pun-based jokes that work because of the performer. Puns don't always work. It's like Bud and Lou. Bud and Lou will do puns, but it only Mm -hmm. works because Bud and Lou do them. I find that when Jack does puns, he does it for anti-comedy. Kind of like the late, great Norm MacDonald would do him for anti-comedy. Right. Well, yeah, it becomes like some Neil Hamburger sketch. Yeah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Did she read yeah. the book under the bed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but no, with with Gracie, there's, there's a, an ability 
to inhabit this character so fully to where it makes sense if you just listen to her. Mm-hmm. And she she sells it in a way where you go, well, of course that's what she would do. And so there's there's no other way to interpret that if you were thinking like Gracie, which you should be doing. Yeah, and we should ask a question here from the purposes of movie logic. What was Gracie's mom like if this is what happened? <laughs> <laughs> because I'd argue that both of them must have been stupid because Harrison Allen has the idiocy to think this plan would work. <laughs> well, the, the idiocy and the audacity, like this is, this is the most contrived plot. Like the the, mo- the dumbest idea to get his daughter to turn on Ramon mm-hmm. is give or, or to, give all the money to the daughter you know hides under the bed because the book told her to. <laughs> exactly. Who answers the phone when it's not ringing and carries on a conversation that way? Yeah. Where you go, dude? What do you even? There's got to be an easier way to prove that this guy is a shitbag. Yeah. And. I mean, you know that immediately. Like, you, this this plot is unsubtle at best. You, you're you're rich. Get a bo- get a couple of tough guys from off the street, kind of like how George was able to just grab two drunks and <laughs> and ru- have them rough up Ramon. And if he just disappears because of the of, because of that, then we'll know. Okay, he wasn't actually a suitor. This is this is what I've been told rich people will do all the time. So. I'm not going to like, I'm not going to give him the benefit of the doubt. He's just crazy is what he is. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he, well, okay. So you asked, what is Gracie's mother? Like it's possible. I mean, Harrison is not the, uh, the, to quote the mom and Juno, the brightest bulb in the tanning bed, but <laughs> maybe he's grumpy now just because his wife is gone and maybe he understands that sensibility. Yeah. And so now the world is a lot less fun without Gracie in it. Oh, I like that sentiment. Or, you know, uh, without without his wife, the, the mother of Gracie, she's no longer around. And now he's just grumpy. Like, I mean, because he's kind of a, he's, you know, a dusty old prick. It sounds like in his previous life, hanging around in the country, he was just as fun a character as anybody. Maybe also money has jaded him too. I mean, clearly he's trying to protect his financial interests as well as the well-being of his daughters. Um, so they get him to sign the contract for this nonsensical plot to which uh, Gracie doesn't sign her right name. And George says, this is a doc- legal document. You have to sign your right name. And she says, don't be silly, George. You should never sign your right name on a document. That's forgery. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, "Look, just sign Gracie Allen, and I don't want to have any more to do with this." All right, Gracie Allen, and I don't want to have any more to do with this. Stop it! The speed at which that joke happens, like I love, I love whenever like a comedian will like do that little like take it literal. I think that that's where people misquote the good night Gracie because the say good night Gracie. Is something that would be said on the radio show, but Gracie would say goodnight, and that's it. But we always have the response of goodnight, Gracie, because the character is so strong, we assume that she would do that. Right. And, that, and by the way, it bears mention that is the sign-off on my podcast as well. It is. It is. And your daughter is named Grace, which if you're, True. if you're following the logic of Six of a Kind, her name is Grace, or Gracie for short. <laughs> <laughs> I rewatched that movie last night and I was just like, that is, that is the most perfect 
explanation for a name I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what, Zach, she, so my first daughter is not named Grace or Gracie for short, um, solely because of Gracie Allen, but it's a big contributing factor. And I'll tell you something else. My other daughter, Sloan, her middle name is actually Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not solely for Gracie Allen either, but it's another contributing factor. Yeah. So you thought it, long again, and hard about this. I'm just naming my uh, kid Jack Benny. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, there's there's more than one person involved in naming a kid as well. So Oh no, well, I, I've already made this arrangement. She gets to name the other kid. <laughs> uh, perfect. Well then, no notes, Zach. Nope, <laughs> nope, 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 exactly. Yeah, just uh just just wait, guys. Jack Benny's coming back, but not the way you expected. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Might be a little bit more rounder. <laughs> um, eh. Hey, that's fine. We need we 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 can, maybe he could be like a Lou Costello. But um, now, <laughs> I like how George also explains. Like, now look, Gracie, I'm your father's legal advisor, but I didn't advise this. I'll explain it to you, but you won't understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he goes to the plot of basically saying that your father is poor, and Gracie over the course of this plot comes to realize that must mean that we need to actually be poor. Your father's poor. So then we must be poor. So you've got to get rid of the money that he gave you. It makes perfect sense. And it's why I have very little sympathy for Harrison Allen. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. No, Um, he asked for this. He, he brought this on himself 100%. And so, Gracie understanding that starts to make them appear poor. And I'll tell you, man, like when the Butler is cutting up Gracie's outfit and when she is taking the scissors and, you know, ruining his Butler outfit, man, that is some real live theater shit because they're filming them as she's cutting the, you know, these outfits into tatters, into rags. Imagine the resets on that. Imagine the resets, how many, this is like, you talk about like, you know, like we, 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 in the film, in the film industry, quote unquote, here in Denver, we deal with independent films where you only have so much for a wardrobe budget. This is 1930s Hollywood where they're struggling, but they're still spending tons of money on wardrobe. How many takes? That's why I want production information because I want to know how many takes, how many takes, how many resets on wardrobe with that. (laughs) That's insane. And compared to modern films, the takes are one of the hardest parts, I think, for people in watching old films. This is a barrier to entry that you may not even be consciously aware of, is how long you go between camera cuts. Mm -hmm. Because these are long takes, man. These are like filmed plays in a lot of ways. Yes. And so you watch them take turns cutting each other's outfits up. And there's not, I don't recall there being a camera cut in there. No. I mean, if if anything, you might clo- cut into a medium or a close, but this film doesn't really deal in close-ups. This film it, really, it really doesn't. To, it deals in wide, and I think for the benefit. It's I think that comedy, especially of this era, to film it properly because there is an art to it, it's best if you deal in wide or medium two-shot. If you go yeah. in any closer, you're taking away the impact of reactive comedy. It's why Jack works better when the ki- when the director is sticking to that shot list and not one that maybe Leo McCary would do, where he would want to get in on the character's emotion. Which is funny because Six of a Kind, which he directed, 
deals in that same vein, not just for Gracie and George's sake, but also Charlie Ruggles' sake and W.C. Fields' sake, because that's where we get the pool table. And I think that here in particular, this not only benefits those performers, it also benefits our 12 unknowns <laughs> that oh yeah that we get because that wide space establishes the madcap madness involved and the you know we, we get Harrison sent off by the way to go he goes to the country um yep. Gracie buys him an upper berth ticket rather than a rather than a a coach to, or a, a, a Pullman car or anything like that um, and because they're poor, yeah. Now they're poor. Now you've got it. Like, and, and he's already starting to regret this, sort of. <laughs> like, good. Yeah, he should. <laughs> and uh, they get him off to the train station, and actually, George loses his car because <laughs> he Gracie recognizes somebody named Harry, gets into a conversation with this guy named Harry, tells George to give him the keys to the Cadillac. Then Harry goes off, and then she goes, George, who was that? <laughs> <laughs> And then George runs after him and then she goes, oh, wait for Cookie. That's kind of like how they're capitalizing because Here Comes Cookie was a big success as a song um, in terms of sales of sheet music. I was able to look at some charts where it was charting very high and it was noticed and recognized in Variety's music charts. So they wanted to capitalize on that name, no doubt. And the they're riding back home on the on, on the uh, on the uh the, the 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 light rail train of it of its era like just a streetcar yeah the trolley yeah the trolley and um gracie reads an article that says it's a known fact that actors are the poorest and most hungry people on this planet which still true it's <laughs> still true to this day that's why i love um the joke in the producers where um uh one of the solutions that they have to their problem is that uh, he gives Franz Liebknecht a bunch of money to go buy bullets and shoot the actors uh, for springtime for Hitler. And <laughs> and Leo Bloom is like, are you crazy? You can't shoot the actors. They're not animals. And Leo, uh, Bialystok goes, really? You ever eaten with one? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so she gets the idea to drive us further into poverty, I'm going to house a ton of vaudevillians in this house and have them eat, up, eat us out of house and home. And the way they're introduced is like a horror movie or like mm. a suspenseful kick where you start hearing sound design in the background that indicates the madness and you have bots going like, You simply have to see it to believe it, sir. Bots, you're turning white. What is it? Actors, sir. Actors, hundreds of them, <laughs> and yeah, it's it's like it's like the White Walkers in Game of Thrones. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Game of Thrones ignorant, but I've heard of the White Walkers, so that that's... I, dude, I am too. We've talked about this. It's not for either of us, but like that that dominates so much of the uh, no, no, not anymore. But uh, it used to be something that everyone referenced all the time. It was like inescapable. It was unavoidable. And now that you have the crux of our plot here. We get tons of insert shots going forward of these vaudevillians doing their shtick. You know, you know what it reminded me of. I just watched the movie The Game. Remember, directed by David Fincher. Yeah, Douglas. <laughs> I'm, I'm like where this is going so far. <laughs> but where when he finally breaks back into CRS, when he's you know com- we're we're coming hard for the movie's climax. And he shows up in that cafeteria and everyone he has interacted with 
in one form or another is there all eating, you know, all just sitting around and they're all still wearing their same fucking costumes Mm -hmm. from like when they interacted with him. So he knows that he'll recognize them. That's like hyper reality. Yeah. Where I love the idea that you've got all these vaudevillians just hanging out in the house and they're not reading the paper. They're not drinking coffee. They're not just chit chatting. They're rehearsing. They're all all doing their fucking acts (laughs) simultaneously. It's like when you walk into a carnival and you, you see all the rides going at the same time and it's sort of visually overwhelming, Mm -hmm. but I love the hyper real aspect of that where like, you know, this is a movie because you never walk into a room and see everyone doing their act simultaneously ever. No. What, like, why would anyone ever do that? But it's such a great director's choice because all of a sudden you go, Oh shit. Like (laughs) that looks like a nightmare place to live as fun as it is. What, you know, watching people juggle and, do do whatever it is that they're Work doing. With train seals, like right. four, four trumpeters in a row, acrobats in this fucking house, <laughs> and, and and everyone is you're you're left with the impression everyone's going to be doing their act at all times. Which I found that those are the six Olympians, by the way. That's the that's the 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 acrobats that we see are the six Olympians. Um, that was no one kidding. of the ones that I was able to find. I didn't find much information on them apart from like that. That would have been the logical plot through is like okay the acrobats the six six olympics that's what they're listed as that's what it is but there's so much more going on in here there's animals in this fucking house too like yeah that the 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 madness of it they they listed off fake names for these acts and i wrote them all down the butler uh bots goes the bouncing baxters happy handsomes morgan's merry minstrels and not a good one in the lot (laughs) (laughs) Here's the thing that kills me about this, Zach. And this is this is why Gracie Allen is so brilliant. Because, yes, she will read Dr. Jekyll and Hyde and end up under the bed to answer a phone call from which no one is calling. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to creating pure chaos, all of a sudden, Gracie is an organizational genius. Yeah. <laughs> because getting that many acts all together in that short a time frame to have them all in the house to help bankrupt your father. All of a sudden she is who's someone who's super fucking organized. Right. I can't even, I like, I can't even pull anything up. She becomes like a robot where this is going to happen and it's going to happen now. This is how all you, of us, you're just describing how it is to organize the Jack Benny convention. <laughs> that's what it's, right. that's what it's been <laughs> like. Somehow we're making this happen. <laughs> Right. So, but like when, when it comes to upending everyone else's world, this makes perfect sense to Gracie. So she's got, she's got her directive now. She knows exactly what she's doing mm-hmm. and everyone else goes, well, no, you're missing the point. And she goes, no, this is what we're doing. And it happens. It happens like that. Yeah. So when, when people, you know, refer to her as a ditz, it's like, no, she's not a ditz, man. She's fucking crazy. Like a Fox. Yeah. This Where, is, can I give you the, the definition of how she caps off the scene, though? Please. She, Burns is looking at all of this madness going on, and then she starts coming up and cutting his clothes, and she goes, there, now you're poor. <laughs> <laughs> we get into the pit, and we have people coming in with fucking ice to put in the bathtub, which it's the old ice men, so it's like on their fucking backs. 
Oh yeah, it's a huge brick of ice, like from a more modern reference, like from Frozen, like what Kristoff uh, does for a living. Yeah, and it's for Thompson's trained seals, uh, and Pilsner's performing. Uh, Pilsner's performing polar bears are in the back, so that's why the seal gets the tub. Um, which th- these acts, like, it's amazing that we didn't see a fucking polar bear in this movie. It's a, it's, it's, it's a goddamn shame that we didn't, <laughs> to be honest. Because I've seen a polar bear in Buck Benny rides again. There's no reason that we can't get a polar bear in this fucking movie. <laughs> no, as, as probably horrifically dangerous as that would have been for everyone involved. Um, it's 1930s Hollywood. Make it happen. You know, yeah. they, they made Judy Garland lose how much weight by forcing her to drink whiskey and smoke cigarettes and basically subsist on chicken broth, you can bring a live polar bear onto set. They 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 made a movie called Murders at the Zoo with Lionel Atwell, where those animals are clearly not being cared for. And they oh, allowed dear. them to do everything. And it's a horror movie. And it's it's brutal. And it, yeah, doesn't, it doesn't pull a punch at all. And so Gracie has filled the house with these vaudeville actors. Let's go back to Ramon for a second because he becomes integral to the plot. <laughs> Wait a minute. Before we do that. Yeah. We have to talk about the shot that I'm thinking of. The, uh-huh. Oh, the, the, yes, the, way, the Walter Hill one. Yes. Where uh, dinner is served and everyone fucking books it into the dining room. And you see everyone take a beat. It's like a perfect vaudeville, vaudeville beat mm-hmm. where you know, dinner is served, they all pause, and then they all sprint into the room. And it reminds me of, and it's so funny, because when you say the names of the acts again, that, uh, that bots, like, oh. that he there's reads a couple, off. There's a couple of them. The Bouncing Baxters, Happy Handsomes, Morgan's, Min- Morgan's Merry Minstrels, Thompson's Trained Seals, Pilsner's Performing Polar Bears. It's all alliterative, by the way. Okay. You know what that is? That's the scene at the beginning of the Warriors when Cyrus <laughs> is is going, we've got the Moon Runners right by the Van Cortland Rangers. And he's listing off all these like really hokey gang names. Mm-hmm. And then when he gets shot and chaos erupts, you're watching everyone run in this park. And the way that they staged it, I, I watched a documentary about it. They would take like 15 kids and they'd be like, okay, run in a circle. And then they'd put 30 people around them and go, okay, you guys run in, in, in the opposite direction of a circle. Yeah. And 45 people have them run in, in the way of the original inner ring circle. So when you stage and block that, it reminded me of that scene at the beginning of the Warriors mm-hmm. where you have so much action and you know, actors are animals, right? And, yeah. and they're the hungriest people on earth. And they're jumping so on that table. They're jumping on that fucking table. <laughs> they, they're going to get there before anyone else and get the fuck out of their way because you might get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> and so it wouldn't, it well, wouldn't have surprised me if we got cannibalism in this movie somehow. <laughs> so to watch that scene, I go, holy shit, that is a triumph in staging and blocking. And the fact that it happens legibly on screen too, you know exactly where everyone is, you know exactly where everyone's going and the shots are composed really, really well. And the edits are perfect. Yeah. It's, it's flawless editing. It, and, and that's why like in the introduction, we talked about the kinetic energy and the, like the zany speed of this, the editing in this film is not unlike a modern film, not unlike a modern film that requires the attention of, what you would consider a 
uh, I, I guess like uh, I, I would equate it honestly to the energy that Edgar Wright can bring to a movie too, where you right. have that that quick cut, but you are allowed to breathe because and show reactive comedy as McLeod is able to show here, and it when this movie sits, it sits wonderfully in those two shots. And we get one of those with Gracie and um, Dula Dula Abdullah Dula. Oh uh, yeah, and and this this wouldn't reader. be an old this wouldn't be an old Hollywood movie if there weren't a white guy wearing a turban at one point. Yeah. Now, how does he get into that turban? Well, Ramon um, is uh, is showing his true colors to Phyllis. Um, so Phyllis is starting to realize that her father is right, and Ramon sets out to. Uh, get for Gracie because the two drunks that were witnesses to the contract tell Ramon, yeah, we thought th- find a way all the money to Gracie. <laughs> and the, and the, so Ramon uh, contacts Broken Nose Riley <laughs> <laughs> and gets him to put on a turban and to become Abdullah Dula. And he's, I don't know what cards he's playing with because we don't see a close-up of these really, but he's going like, just like I taught, the three of queens, the jack of, the, 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 the jack of so-and-so. He's just using a regular deck of cards. That's, that's the right. only way that this— Yeah, it's not tarot cards. Yeah, it's the only way that this makes sense. The jack of spades is one. It means a tall, dark man is going to cross your path. And besides, they've got the sun over there. And Gracie's trying to figure out what these cards mean, but he's just going like, listen, will you stop it? (laughs) The frustration on Riley's face is just beautiful. It's a slow burn. It's like Edgar Kennedy in um, Duck Soup, the the guy who has the peanut – oh, the lemonade stand. And that that kind of slow burn to energy, but – Abdullah Dula basically tells him like Ramon's going to be on the path without saying Ramon's name. Right. And so here's the thing about that too, Zach. Um, He gets so frustrated because anytime anyone is trying to grift in a movie, particularly in this movie, Gracie can, she has almost like this preternatural power to see through it and, and get to the heart of what, what they're doing. And by asking simple questions, I mean, they're insane questions, but if you're, if you're grifting, you don't have good answers for them and you end up tangling yourself in knots. Gracie can cut through that lack of sincerity really, really fast. Yeah. Because like, this is clearly bullshit. This is clearly a setup. And even if she doesn't, we're led to believe she doesn't necessarily realize that, but that doesn't matter because if you were being inauthentic or insincere, when posed with someone like her, you, your fucking robe just falls off and all of a sudden you're standing there naked. I have right? one where he kind of like reveals himself to him where he goes like, just like I taught, the sun is shining. If you go riding early tomorrow, you'll meet the love of your dreams. And besides, it's the three of hearts. That means you'll know your Romeo when you see him because he'll be carrying a handkerchief. Has it cold, huh? <laughs> Who's the Hindu, me or you? And they, and I, and my response was, none of you are. <laughs> and, um, no and one. Gracie goes, let me think. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually calls back another gag when um, she gives this weird look on the trolley train and George is like so, so worried. Like, I've never seen that look on your face before. And she goes, I'm thinking. And he's like, that must be it. <laughs> um, and that, but yeah, he defl- she's deflating 
the con. Yeah. She deflates the con. It's almost like Gracie, in a weird way, serves the code because she deflates pre-code plots. She deflates these pre-code plots with her illogical logic because on the surface, Gracie has what would be considered like – you remember in Arrested Development, Charlize Theron's character – um, the uh, who had the mental who, who was mentally challenged, and Michael didn't realize it for several different episodes. Um, I don't remember that, but keep going. It sounds it it reminds me of that. It's where they kind of incorporated this weird British spy plot where with Mister F, and that to me reminds me of how Gracie acts. But the difference is is that when we talk about Gracie. I don't even think by today's standards you would label this necessarily as a mentally challenged person. And I think no. this is really just – when you say dizzy, it really is just that. It's dizzy. Um, Jenna Maroney on 30 Rock has moments like these. <laughs> like that, that, that stuff is not like uncommon. And the way that she deflates these pre-code plots, it's almost like in a way it's even more subversive because she's calling out a trend. But there's no intention on that. It's just because the material was written as such that it was going to have to do this in order to work as a movie. So it's it's uh, innovative by necessity and not by intention. <laughs> right. I think that's a good way of putting it too. But it's it's one of those things where if – have you ever been caught in a lie and someone just asks you a very, very basic question – and you cannot answer it because you know you're full of shit and you haven't done the work to establish the, the backstory in your mind properly or put up all the machinations in your head. You, you haven't done your due diligence mm -hmm. in, in terms of actually executing this lie when, when confronted with some very simple questions. Yeah. You know, it, it's like in Reservoir Dogs when he's, he's telling Mr. Orange or Freddy to use the commode story. And he said, you got to know every little detail about this fucking bathroom. So because like people are going to ask for those details, yeah. whether whether you're ready for them or not. So you need to do all that work. Everyone in this plot who is trying to grift or use Gracie in one form or another is so lazy in their execution. Oh, yeah. That they're undone by the, sim the simplest propositions from her. Yeah. Oddly enough, though. Broken Nose Riley is able to fool George because he tells him that if you sleep on top of the bed, <laughs> then things will start <laughs> to improve, and then that's just an that's just a way to get into George's bed. Well, clearly, I mean George George is not set up to be a super intelligent character in this movie. No, 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 no. He's like, I mean he he's barely he along, <laughs> right. He goes along with this deal from Harrison, and, and you can tell he's been hanging out with Harrison for too long because the fact that he would even agree to this like shows that his thinking has been poisoned too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not helped by the fact that our plots, our Gracie plot is about to get even crazier because first of all, it, the, the house has been thrown into such disarray that bots is sleeping at the park. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, d I will point out for the audience just as you know, I like to, to make sure, you know, people are comfortable with this. We do get the stereotypical Asian cook with the accent. Mm -hmm. It's not really done for comedy in that way. It really is to establish that everybody in this house has been inconvenienced by that. 
Um, yeah. You know, like he, he um, uh, uh, he slept in the laundry tub is the, is the closest it gets to problematic, but the, the key part of this is that the help has been thrown into disarray just as much. Well, and this is the part where I'd like to say that bots is outside of Gracie is my favorite character in this. Damn right. But, but it got me thinking about how the Butler is frequently the best character in any movie. Like if you get to play the Butler, think about this. Okay. So you've got Michael Goff in Batman. Yes. Right. You've got Michael Caine also in, in the later year, Batman, Tim Curry as Wadsworth in clue. Mm-hmm. You've got um, Robert Grieg uh, from Sullivan's Travels and in um, uh, Animal Crackers. He gets some wonderful moments where you question what the fuck was your life before becoming a butler? <laughs> Just small okay. throwaway lines. <laughs> totally. Okay. Think about Hank Azaria as Agador in The Birdcage. Yes. Yes. Um, who is so scene stealing in that. And then let's let's do another old uh, example here. Let's talk about Arthur Treacher as uh, Bertie Minchin in The Little Princess. Mm. So the, the Shirley Temple movie where, you know, Shirley Temple goes to a high-end girls' school. This is probably my favorite Shirley Temple movie, actually. Um, but he's the butler there, and so they end up working together quite a bit. And he has my favorite line in that whole movie when there's a monkey, and he goes, my word, a gorilla. <laughs> and <laughs> it's just, it's such a weird laugh line. But... He plays off Shirley Temple better than almost anyone in that movie, um, except for when her dad comes back from war and he's all blind and, you know, he's calling out for Sarah and, and they think he's derelict. But anyway, I'm getting off track. Yeah. The point is, there are a lot of examples of the butler being someone that is is going to be the best character. Shit, dude, I was just watching an episode of fucking Bluey the other day with my kids. Mm-hmm. And that show it largely is very annoying. But... At one point, they're playing like queen or royalty. I can't, I can't fucking remember. But one of them gets to be the queen, and the other one gets to be the butler. Mm-hmm. They fight over who gets to be the butler <laughs> because the butler has the most fun stuff to do. Being the queen, you just basically have a stiff upper lip and you fucking wave at people, and that's it. The butler is always the most interesting character because the butler knows where all the bodies are buried. The um- and. And has to deal with everything. I can tell you, we've talked about one of the most famous examples of that for almost 60 episodes of this show, Eddie Rochester Anderson. Oh, Jesus Christ. Hello, that's, yes. That's, that's the king of them all. And with all the talk that we've had about the problematic element of that relationship, you throw <laughs> that aside. You throw this aside. Jack uh, Jack is not as smart as Rochester. It's written as such for him to deflate Jack. It is. It's it's one of the like the character that people remember apart from Jack on Jack Benny's program is Rochester. They will remember yeah. very little about Phil Harris being on that show, Dennis, Mary, Don. They remember Eddie. And I think right. that, that and also um there's a, the most obvious example, my man Godfrey. William Powell as the butler in My Man Godfrey, even though he's not really a butler, he's actually a rich person. But when he's playing a butler, He's one of the most interesting characters in the in the whole movie. <laughs> okay, so not exactly butlers either, but let's let's think about this. What about Robert Guillaume as Benson? I mean, a couple mm-hmm. of TV examples coming at you. Yeah, um, not exactly a butler. And then the show was called Mister Belvedere. So, like, you know, or if you liked SNL, Brock Toon, which the is nanny. one of my all time favorite sketch. 
uh, the nanny, right? So, um, but Mr. Belvedere, the show is about the butler. <laughs> you know, he, he's taking care of this family, but it's like, no, we give a shit about about the butler. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, they they are a delivery for so many different types of jokes and sensibilities that allow for commentary. They allow for absurdism. They allow for satire there. You can hang so many different types of jokes off a Butler character is perfect. And yeah. so, and uh, I've forgotten the actor's name who's, who's playing him in this movie. Oh, um, uh, Andrew Toombs. Um, Andrew Toombs. Uh, he he absolutely crushes every scene he's in in this movie. Yeah, there's not a dull moment where he's not involved. And when he he's about to get involved in the madness at some point because uh, he he bots reveals that Gracie has decided to put on a show. She's going to produce a show. Um, and by the way, as this revelation is coming out, there is a bicycle a bicyclist that just does a figure eight around George and bots. <laughs> Um, yep. And that is uh, Jester is uh, one part of Jester and Mole, which was a bicycle act. Um, so that was another identifier that I was able to find. Um, and uh, but um, we get the revelation that George George realizes that if Gracie produces a show, she'll lose her shirt. <laughs> and Bots <laughs> yeah. is like, "That's the idea, sir." <laughs> and, and this comes after, by the way, he goes into the bathroom and there's a se- the seals in the tub and. Um, the seal comes into play technically in the plot with bots doing something. We don't know what he did. Butlers can also be the sleaziest people imaginable. Oh, yeah. We don't know exactly what happens to this seal. Um, another. Oh, it's like I said, it's it's like the most malleable character that yeah. you can create. And in a lot of ways, the most relatable that you can, yeah. you can apply to the common man element of the, the, the idea of like if we're gonna if we're gonna make fun of rich people, the only like point of view character we're going to have is the butler. And there's intercuts, by the way, of a vaudevillian that I was able to track only because uh, he was in westerns. Uh, Pascal Perry uh, is the sharpshooter. From what I'm able to gather, he is the sharpshooter that's doing that where you're shooting a gun with a mirror to like basically say I can shoot blind and yeah. is shooting all those balloons. He was in films like The Gallant Fool, Eyes of Texas, Springtime in the Sierras. He has 126 films on his resume uncredited as either rancher, deputy, rancher, barfly, henchman, barfly, burke, cowhand. <laughs> like, <laughs> Excellent. And a, a vaudevillian who found a way to just keep working. A lot of these guys ended up becoming background people because that's all they could get. And, but they get this showcase regardless because this show is not only going to be produced, but it's going to turn the house literally upside down and inside out because Gracie commissions an entire crew to turn the house into a theater. And again, allow, allow me to prove the point that I was making earlier, which is to say when she finally has her goal, has her directive, she turns into a machine mm-hmm. in execution. Yeah. It's just that so much of what everyone else is doing is either pointless or cynical or misdirected. Gracie now has an earnest goal and she can turn her talents and her efforts onto that 100% and 
and she makes it happen with remarkable efficiency. You compare that. So like we're, we're in agreement that this plot is insane. Oh yeah. No, it's right? ridiculous. And that's like that, beauty. That, that what, I mean, what she's doing is ultimately like not in anyone's best interest. It seems at first, but it's still a better plan by every single fucking measure than her dad's dumbass plan to get Ramon out of the picture. It certainly makes more it makes more entertaining sense. And yeah. it proves to be a better movie than if it was carried out with her being a an uh, a a normal thinking person. Like yeah. if she had normal cognitive function this plot would be boring as sin. We wouldn't be talking about this movie. We wouldn't like, it, it, yeah. Or, or you could turn it into like, you know, like you, you could use this basic plot construction, right? Rich guy tries to prove that her, that his daughter is marrying a conniving shit bag. This is a cheap rom-com. If not with George Burns and Gracie Allen, <laughs> or you could turn it into something like a perfect murder with Michael Douglas and oh, Gwyneth Paltrow. That's right. Good. That's a good point. It, it could be that kind of plot, like just some sort of really lame pot boiler that was like really hot in the late nineties mm-hmm. where you're trying to contrive a murder for some reason where that seems unnecessary. Comes out of like that post silence of the lamb era. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you're really trying to like, and you're and the crime is always upped in terms of its insanity or like the murder. Right. And then something goes wrong. And everyone is kind of dealing with the fallout from that. And that's the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Like you could easily take this basic plot architecture and plug it into that. Yeah. And it, it speaks to the ingenuity. George said in the book that he would pick the films. And I think he knew a good plot when he saw one. Because especially one that would fit the act. Because right. as long as it gives room for Gracie to be Gracie the plot the, the 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 plot will carry itself from there with Gracie's help like it's 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 kind of amazing how it's similar to how like i was watching a movie called goodbye again this week um directed by michael curtiz which is a comedy but if you made that today it would be a horror movie <laughs> it would flat out be a horror movie because of the insanity of one of the women involved and i i think that it's so much so that what like we haven't we're we're gonna get to the Ramon plot real quick here again because he does finally make the moves on Gracie, which she's very relieved because she thought she'd have to fall in love with someone she didn't know. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, he makes the moves on her. There's imagery of them of him seducing her on the park bench that would otherwise be used in pre-code as a saucy scene. Here it's treated as silly, and like right. that imagery is subverted. It's subverted for the purposes of Gracie's comedy. It's it's similar to how the Marx Brothers would be put in a plot that would parody a very typical film. So like in Horse Feathers, it's, they're parodying college films. In mm-hmm. Duck Soup, they're parodying war films, the World War One warning films. Here they're still making a warning, but it's com- comedic. Gracie is subverting pre-code sleaze. Because there's no way you would conceive of Gracie as a character as sexy, <laughs> um, right? It, which, which by not, not me, conventionally anyway. Yes, not conventionally. And what's more, the 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 imagery that gets even sillier because at one point she's swinging him on a swing, going, "Tell me you love me." 
tell me you love me. <laughs> and that's when they get engaged, <laughs> is on this swing. And yeah. the Ramon's act in the plot essentially becomes he's going to abscond with the money profits from the show. Um, and we're about to get to our climax here because Bots, George, and Phyllis devise a plan for Phyllis with whatever money they have because Gracie's not giving out the money. We should say this out loud. She's not yeah. giving out the money. She hasn't sent a dime to her father in his old country house or his old country town, yeah. um, to which now he's just living off of the denizens of the town. And they gather enough money together because Bots does something with that seal. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't care. I, I think he pawned it, but <laughs> I really hope it didn't kill the seal. <laughs> yeah. Like, but Gladys is the name of the seal, and the owner for the rest of the movie is trying to find Gladys, <laughs> the seal. Yeah. Um, and so Phyllis gets off to Harrison, and she goes, you're right, I was wrong. And Harrison's like, right on, let's get out of here. And we get the uh, another one of those phone call moments from under the bed. Um, where Harrison calls and just chews out Gracie, <laughs> to which yeah. Gracie just kind of like thinks that everything's okay. <laughs> like it, it's it's it it's one of those like ramp ups that by the time we get to the end of this film, which be- just becomes a fucking vaudeville review. <laughs> yeah, you are you're not you're you're kind of you're not left exhausted, but you are you're you're on a high. Because you don't think this could get any crazier. And I think that it reaches its peak when they're in, when Harrison and Phyllis are in the cab with the cab driver who's similar to the cab driver in Arsenic and Old Lace is not getting his money. He's never going to get his money. No. Um, it, that, that money's gone. That $118 is gone, my friend. And they look outside, and then suddenly it's just the outside of a theater. And just realizing what she has done. Like Paramount is physicalizing through a set the 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 machinations of her actions. Like this is the mm-hmm. result. Is this insanity? And we get like I this film is filled, as many films with Burns and Allen are, they are filled with examples of what their routine would have been on vaudeville. We get an example of how the routine could have gone because George came up with several different routines. And he had to increase that even more so because of radio. Because you could burn through an entire year's worth of material in a week. And Jack yeah. Jack Benny ran into this problem, and that's why he had to get a writer like Harry Kahn to build a character for him. George didn't really have that problem because the material was already pretty much there because Gracie was there. Yeah, he, he lived it. Yeah, he lived it. And we... I have a note here on where they're about to start this show and we get, I want to, I'm going to lay in a clip of this for people in post so that people can hear the interaction because this is, I think the most accessible you can get because everybody's heard of William Shakespeare and Gracie is told that the house is sold out. And then that's where we'll kick in the scene. You're sold out, Miss Allen. Oh, Georgie Porgy, isn't it awful? Ramon promised to marry me right after the show tonight. And now I'll be so rich, Papa won't let me marry him. Oh, and I, I charge $20 just so nobody would come. If people pay $20 to see this show, they'll sue us for using a theater to defraud. You know, I wired Shakespeare to come and see me play Juliet, but he didn't even answer. 
He didn't, did he? No. I think he should get in free, don't you? Gracie, this is going to be a terrible shock to you, but Shakespeare's been dead uh, for over 300 years. He has... Well, time certainly flies. Don't you think so? I think so. At the end of that clip, you hear George just agreeing, I think so. Some of the best moments of George in this act is when he just caves into Gracie. He yeah. caves into the logic. And it becomes even more heartwarming when they turn it into a sitcom format. Because in spite of everything that Gracie does, George still loves her. And that's oh, yeah. consequently, like in real life, in spite of everything George did, Gracie still loved him. Because George fucked around. Mm-hmm. Uh, George, there is a... There is a debate amid their legacy as to how hard George worked Gracie. Mm. Um, it, from what I gather, it seems like it was co-agreed. It was agreed upon. Like it wasn't like nobody felt like they were forced in anything. And when Gracie right. wanted to leave, she he didn't he didn't put up a fight. Um, yeah, well, it wasn't like indentured servitude. No, 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 no. This, we're not talking about like the Hilton sisters being like shoved around from family to family right. in, in the in the the freak shows in vaudeville this is this was a a a marriage of convenience with love attached to it and it's kind of hard to like say that out loud and not sound sincere the way it should be sounding because that is it is a love story that did triumph they had they adopted two children raised them perfectly well and you know i I think that we've we've learned just through examining George's books that Gracie did kind of worry about George's self-esteem. And I think that's why she kept doing all these movies and kept doing all these radio shows and getting into routines like this for over 20 plus years. Right. Because George's character comes off as somebody who once Gracie goes, he has no career afterwards. <laughs> and you get that example from there, but you also see in examples like these, George's power as a straight man. A good straight man was worth more than the comedy act or the, oh, the yeah. comedian because you needed somebody that that's why Bud Abbott was considered one of the best. Only he could deal with Lou. <laughs> like that. Right. Well, okay. So two things I want to say. One, going back to pro wrestling, because that's how I relate to the world. One of the greatest tag teams of all time is called the Rock and Roll Express. Mm-hmm. And the reason they always got heat was because for a good chunk of the match, Ricky Morton, who was the heartthrob of that team, would get his ass kicked by the dastardly heels. And people would lose their fucking minds as Ricky Morton is just getting beat to shit. And like they, they call that the heat segment in a match. Now, they're building the heat to finally pay it off with a hot tag. And the hot tag is when Ricky Morton would finally escape long enough to tag Robert, Robert Gibson. Mm-hmm. And then he would come and clean house and everyone would lose their minds because they want to see the heels get their comeuppance. That act only works because both Ricky and Robert knew where to pull the strings effectively and what their strengths were. Anytime there was a long heat segment on Robert Gibson, you're going, what the fuck are they even doing? Who cares? Like, this doesn't matter. So going back to what you said earlier... It reminds me of when originally, you know, you had George delivering the comedic lines and Gracie being the straight. You go, that doesn't work. If you switch that, then the act sings. Yeah. So in, in terms of knowing your role, that's important. 
Secondly, I'll say, as I watched this for the first time, outside of bots, Gracie is so far a cut above everyone else performance-wise in this movie. She is, for me, she was lapping the competition. I mean, everyone else might as well have been on fucking Quaaludes, except for these, um, you know, except for the, um, the vaudeville acts. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, between Harrison and Ramon, who I didn't buy for a second, um, and Phyllis, who, like, has, like, a serviceable but kind of thankless role in this movie. Yeah. She's she's there kind of as plot device. And so, you know, you can't really fault the actress too much for that. Gracie was keeping me in it. And it reminds me of a couple of other modern performances where the performer is, is a cut above even the material or anyone else in it. And I'll, I'll give you the first one. Uh, Raul Julia in Street Fighter, where... Do you remember Street Fighter, that terrible video game adaptation? Yes, um, not as well as Brad would, but <laughs> <laughs> our mutual friend Brad. Yeah, uh, Raul Julia as M. Bison is just chewing the scenery and having the best time. And you're going, what movie is he doing? And what movie is everyone else doing? Yeah. Um, and then you've got The Rock in one of his breakout roles in Be Cool. Yeah. Be Cool is oddly listless, despite having. John Travolta and Uma Thurman, and it's an Elmore Leonard adaptation. And you've got Harvey Keitel and Vince Vaughn, and like everyone's in this movie. And it's and you it have, seems like you have Chili Palmer back after Get Shorty. Right. This should be a success. And somehow they John Travolta and Uma Thurman have no chemistry in that movie. You're going, how did you manage to do that? Like, how did you fuck up this adaptation so badly? Where you take these two from Pulp Fiction and somehow give them no chemistry? But the Rock and maybe Andre 3000 stand above everyone else in that movie. Mm-hmm. For me, watching this for the first time, Gracie was a, a full letter grade above everyone else performance-wise. Yeah, and I think that I, I I think that that kind of played as a trope for a lot of their films that didn't have another bigger star attached to them. When they're the two big headliners, the the she's going to be the standout performer. When she's in an ensemble. She stands out, but she doesn't. But she's also competing. When you've got W. Right. C. Fields in the same movie, you're competing. Um, when you've got Bob Hope in the same movie, you're going to compete to an extent as well. Um, right. College Swing, I think, is sold by Gracie, but you're going there because of Bob initially from a modern context. Um, and that is a movie that also contains a lot of vaudeville actors or character com- comedic character actors, kind of put in like you know, insert here for physical shtick roles. Um, and George and Gracie also did a number of, uh, like, films with dancers. So, like, they did Damsel in Distress with Fred Astaire. Their last movie was Honolulu with Eleanor Powell. Um, they, they've, their, their career is so varied in film, but it always centers around, like, the best of these films tend to be the ones where they are the stars. Or Six of a Kind, where you have uh, kind of a whole group of madness and the plot is strong enough to support their madness and college swing. It's an imperfect film, but I enjoy it because they fit so well into the plot. Like it's, it's of course a comedic plot would be that Gracie runs a college. Of course that would be a plot. Right. Um, And I think that here in particular, especially in the third act, she has, so much to do 
because yeah. and we're going to get to that but you were bringing up I wanted to I want to give us a sideline here to talk about the the drummer. Oh my god. Because the show starts Harris and Allen and the cab driver and Phyllis are trying to find a way inside the the theater because they can't get in because Ramon refuses them at the box office because he's going to abscond with the money. doesn't matter. We're going to talk about this show. This show starts with the world's greatest fucking drum act ever. I, I, I lit, they dedicate like five full minutes to it. Yeah. And, they, and it, oh, it's my favorite thing I think in this entire movie, like, and, and there are things I adore in this movie, but that stands alone. I've never seen anything like that. Yeah. It's Jack Powell. Jack Powell is the drummer. Now I wasn't able to find like a huge biography on him, but I did find uh, a couple of pieces of articles that kind of put together his story. There's a drummer blog that proclaims him as somebody who uh, was among the many people that uh, Buddy Rich encountered upon his journey toward becoming a master drummer. Um, There is this, Ludwig Drummer magazine from the 1940s that features our Jack Powell in blackface. Um, so <laughs> that's sad. But um, it features an article about Powell being the world's highest paid drum star. Um, huh. And the, 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 the capper on this is that I found some articles pertaining to his drumming. From here at the Strand, um, or sorry, from here at... Um, the Palm Beach Post in West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, in April of the year of the release of this film. Um, somebody is speaking upon their experiences in New York, and they said, I picked up Jack Powell's act for probably the 20th time the other afternoon. He is a timpanist who, without orchestration, clickety-clacks heavenly rhythms with drumsticks on whatever he finds handy. He flushes out the drummer boy instinct in every adult, carrying an insect hum to a violent crescendo that wimples the the goose flesh. There are no changing notes in his flickering rotation, yet his music is of the highest order, far more blood-stirring than most jazz bands. He is one of he's one fellow who made a career of a boyhood ambition. I hear he is paid eight hundred dollars a week. Holy shit! That's nineteen thirty-five money. Yeah, that's more than some people are being paid on a Warner Brothers lot to make movies. This guy didn't have to worry about obscurity. He was able to live off money, which is, in a way, that's what vaudevillians were working for. Like, they want to get paid and they want to live. (laughs) Well, who doesn't, really? Yeah. But so you're you're watching this and he starts out and you're going, oh, okay. And it keeps going and it just keeps getting better and more intricate. And the thing that destroyed me the most about it and something I love, and I'm going to reference an interview I read with Seth MacFarlane at one point, where he talks about his love of old Hollywood and old performers, because someone like Gene Kelly will do all this complex and intricate choreography and smile while doing it and make it look effortless. Yeah. Whereas you compare that against watching sort of modern pop stars, like, you know, you could say Beyonce or like, do you remember viral a few years ago when Beyonce did the Super Bowl and she wanted those weird photos of the faces she was making while performing, like scrubbed from the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So modern pop stars are working so hard at sweating. And he said, they're up there. They look like they're going to take a shit on stage where they're just putting out so much effort. You compare that against this drummer who is smiling at the audience, not even watching what he's doing. And it's 
the most beautiful stick work you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And he's tapping out these incredibly fast and complex rhythms. I'm not a musician. I can't like tell you what the time signature is on what he's doing or anything. It does not matter. This has something for everyone in it when you watch this scene in the movie. And it's the one I'm going to watch again and again and again. It's the most accessible clip from this movie on YouTube. Yeah. It's the well, most accessible. good reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, I think that, you know, you brought that up and I was actually like, I would, I would point to the idea that, because I've, I've started seeing, like, since I've started dating my girlfriend, she's introduced me to, um, a modern artist, and one of them was Ariana Grande, who mm-hmm. doesn't look like she's sweating. She reminds right. me of those performers who knew what they were doing. And I would say Jack is in this similar vein where you do a thousand hours of something, you get good at it, right? Well, these guys not only had to do that, but they loved doing it anyway. You wouldn't, you didn't stay in vaudeville if you didn't like it. Vaudeville was a harsh mistress full of cold, dark nights on trains, overnights, barely being able to scrape together a living. You did it because you loved it. George George sifted through years of it in poverty because he loved it. The Marx yeah. Brothers knew nothing else. Many, many did that in certain respects to keep them off the streets from crime. Jack, Jack did it out of love for playing the violin, but not necessarily aspiring to the practiced efforts of Yasha Heifetz that, that, that you only do this because you love it. This guy didn't need film stardom. He had reached a point where his drum skills are so refined that somebody like buddy rich takes what he can learn from him and puts it into his work. Gene Krupa would be arguably in the same vein. You've got people who loved doing what they're doing. Most pop stars, one thing that I would question in terms of their love of their craft is I don't think they love it for the reasons that people would have become successful back then. I feel like the studio work is more their passion and then the concerts are there to pay money. That's entirely possible, but it's also possible that due to external factors, a lot of the joy has been scrubbed from them. Like through, not necessarily through their own fault, but through the machine of a hyper-capitalist industry. Yeah. And and don't get me wrong. Vaudeville's not innocent of that behavior. Of course not. But Vaudeville also had a loosey-goosiness that I feel like we denigrate in some corners. We'll denigrate TikTok or Vine or whatever it was to some kind of cheap fad, but it, the truth is, is that it. This is where vaudeville went. It's kind of like old time radio went to podcasting. That's where it went, and yeah. vaudeville went to YouTube, and that's mm. where you tend to find the more disciplined performers because they want to do it. They're more than likely not going to get paid enough to do what they're doing. They're not. Not everybody is as big as a Jenna Marbles. They are going to find a niche for themselves that they want to do for themselves. If they get paid for it, great. If not, that's not the reason they're doing it. it. It reminds me of this account I follow on Facebook called House of Bounce, which congratulations, Facebook algorithm. You showed me this ad enough and like enough cool shit on it to where I finally followed it. Terrific. Mark Zuckerberg's just going like, yay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Waving <laughs> he, he, a single that's... flag from like a fucking college football <laughs> game. <laughs> so, 
But it, it, it spotlights these people who stage elaborate trick shots or people who are really, really good jugglers mm-hmm. or who, who can dribble a basketball in a way that no one else can. And you're right. That's a very vaudeville energy. It's just migrated online. And now with the democratization of content, it's a lot easier to find this unusual, interesting, cool shit. There are times where I will just go online and look up. Have you ever heard of a juggler named Michael Motion? No. Who does, it's like contact juggling. And is he, it's spelled is he as F- good as W.C. Fields? <laughs> uh, in some ways, better, but different. Hmm. So like, and his name is spelled M-O-S-H-E-N. I want to say there could be, it could be S-C-H-E-N. But he is just on another planet in terms of, um, yeah, there's a C in it. Yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing clips of it. Wow, this is like a dance. The triangle. So, wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the first one that comes up if you type in Michael Motion. And then he's doing one with like fucking. Fa- he's, he's juggling it with his feet. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm watching like the quick clips so I don't play the sound through here. But so yeah, this is from like the 80s. Uh, I think that was when Michael Motion started. Mm-hmm. Because like, there's one of him on you know the Jerry Lewis telethon from 1991. Um, but when you can find folks like that easier on platforms like TikTok. I mean, rest in peace, fine. But like Facebook video, YouTube, that in, in many ways, that's reassuring. It's kind of like at a certain point when everyone had an Etsy store mm-hmm. yeah, where people are, are able to express creativity. It's like, well, you know, I have a day job. I'm a fucking, you know, accountant or whatever. But I also make these cool earrings out of bottle caps or, you know, like, I, I love woodworking. So I started making these interesting cutting boards Yeah, or, you know, like uh, I started bottling my own hot sauce and I really enjoy doing that. So with the democratization of both content and commerce, vaudeville style stuff, even if it's not vaudeville, but like, I would argue you're doing really strange work. If you have a passion to make your own hot sauce, you know what I mean? Because yeah. there's like, there's nine zillion hot sauces out there and most of them are, at least pretty good. So the idea that you have a new twist on it is it feels almost like, well, you're not, you know, you're never going to make a living at this, but that's not the point. Mm-hmm. It's doing it for the joy of creation and of artistic expression, no matter what that manifests in, whether it's gardening, whether it's woodworking, whether it's juggling, or in this guy's case, the best fucking drumming you've ever seen in your entire life. Right. And that, you know, it, there's a shame in this movie. There's only one shame I have in this movie, and that's that it's not an hour and a half long. Because <laughs> if it were an hour and a half, that third act would have been long, and it would have been a review of all the vaudeville acts in that house. And, and they would have proved bots wrong, too, because he said there's not a good one among them. And I'd be like, oh, fuck you, bots. We it's saw like, one of but, them. <laughs> bots, you have no eye for talent. Yeah, I think, and I wondered about that, and I kind of came to the realization that, like, what they would have considered a hokey act back then, we consider glorious today in some regards and respects. Okay. I, I bet you if we watched that Train Seal act, we would we would gawk at it the same way we gawk <laughs> at America's Funniest Home Videos or the world or the planet's funniest animals on plan, Animal right. Planet. That we would we would marvel at that because. We, much like the audience back then, marvel at the thing we haven't seen before, which 
ideally is what films are supposed to do. It doesn't always fit that bill. And so that's why live theater is still important on the local scene. Like the Bug Theater has Freak Train. We still have yeah. Vaudeville in the form of Freak Train over in Denver. And that that actually makes the next situation that happens in this act very not disappointing, but uh too stagey. And it's the musical number that we get with Gracie, um, which I like it, but because Vamp of the Pompous is a fun song and you even get a little bit of a tinge of the looky, 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 here comes cookie. This is this weird part of Gracie's career where she was adapting amongst other things like songs about South America or, or with a Latin flair. And it's coming out of this dainty Irish lady. <laughs> and I, I, I do <laughs> find it quite silly but uh, the choreography of it is so of its moment mm. that it doesn't have the same panache as a vaudeville act would if you were to have more things like the drummer or the bicyclist. I want to see these bicyclists, the yeah. sharpshooter, any of them would be a little bit more interesting than that musical number. But then we get Romeo and Juliet with Gracie, and yeah. it ceases to be Romeo and Juliet pretty quickly <laughs> because yeah. she gets a call from Schultz at the meat market. <laughs> um, and um, she, she, by the way, she asked the butcher to call at night because she only wanted dark meat. <laughs> it all makes it's it all makes sense, John. Um, it's all perfect. And this is where we get the collision of everything because Ramon is locked up in the <laughs> locked up in the box office because Gracie wants to make sure he doesn't get away because <laughs> yeah. she wants to marry him. And then Harrison comes up from underneath the uh, underneath the stage um and interrupts the Romeo and Juliet act to basically like unload all of his frustration at his own fucking problem. <laughs> yep. <laughs> He created this himself entirely. Yeah, exactly. Like wallow, wallow in your failure, my friend. Um, and that's when, amidst all of this, Botts comes out as Romeo because he's just decided, "Fuck it, I want to be an actor." Because <laughs> of course he does. And the ending of this film, John, is perfect, and why I think it's one of the the ultimate like Burns and Allen movie because it could conceivably lead to the. <laughs> It could lead to the series itself is that That's true. George throughout this entire movie has said, I'm a bachelor. And the more I see Gracie, the more I intend on being a bachelor. <laughs> and Gracie gets offers from Hollywood because her show is such a big success. And they, George agrees to marry Gracie at Harrison's insistence and the only reason he agrees to this is because while she's in Hollywood making movies, he'll be on the East Coast managing her affairs. And then eventually they'll be able to pass each other on passing trains and wave each other, and then she'll be he'll be able to see the children. <laughs> <laughs> it's a marriage that I guess works for the Burns here in this particular case because that's when the movie just kind of cuts to an end. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very abrupt ending. Um, and you know, I, I suppose, I suppose it works, but, uh, when it ended, I go, uh, okay. Um, I mean, it, it was resolved, but I found it a bit unsatisfying. Right. I can understand. It's not, um, 
you you almost want something bigger. And I frankly, I think that part of that would be more of the vaudeville acts, but also it's almost like similar to how the Marx Brothers almost did this every time and never quite got to do it. You'd almost want to see the theater burn down just to just to just capitalize <laughs> on the insanity. And they never really quite reached that mark. If anything, this film's weakest part is the fact that it just ends. Yeah, it, it could use uh, a little bit of a denouement. Yeah, I agree. Like and- just something where even, okay, so at the end of we, our last podcast was It's a Gift. Mm-hmm. At the end of it, he he gets his own orange wrench. He gets a shitload of money. And we get like one last shot of him sitting there at an actual orange grove taking one off the tree and filling his glass with vodka and a little bit of orange juice. Yeah. Something, just even a shot like that, put them on the fucking trains, man, and have them wave at each other and make that the end. Or you capitalize on that drummer and have one last moment of that drummer drumming George's head as he realizes he's about (laughs) to marry Gracie. That's how you end this movie. (laughs) That's even better, yes. (laughs) That's the only way that I can see the madness quantifying itself for the end of this motion picture that we have lovingly talked about. And it seemed like from all, like, again, there's not a lot of production information. There's also not a lot of reviews available for this film. Um, So I had to do some digging via newspaper.com. And what I was able to find was uh, amounting to just enthusiasm for the piece. Um, from the from the morning call in Allentown, Pennsylvania, at the Strand Theater it was playing as of October 14th, 1935. It says, Filmdom's dizziest but best-loved pair of comedians, Burns and Allen, delight their vast army of fans with their latest verbal shenanigans in the Paramount comedy Here Comes Cookie at the Strand Theater. Bulging with typical and universally familiar Burns and Allen witticisms, these famous comic stars romp through their newest piece of foolishness with customary gaiety and ease. Provided with a robust plot, meaty situations, and an original theme, Here Comes Cookie. Which, again, this tells me that maybe Here Comes Cookie was somewhere in this movie because it might have been a scene that they took out later, but everybody's referring to it somehow. So either George is misremembering or we've got a deleted scene that we don't know about. Um, But here comes cookie wins hits merry making way with one hilarious incident following another in rapid fire succession Um, from the times union, Brooklyn, New York, says Gracie Allen, the screen's most delightful idiot, <laughs> may be found this week in Here Comes Cookie, her most delightful piece of cinema silliness. The film now at the New York Paramount Theater is completely and unashamedly mad. What could be expected of a picture which gives the nitwitted Gracie a million dollars and orders to spend them all at once? The New York Paramount indu- indubitably believing, and rightfully so, that Here Comes Cookie, that the Here Comes Cookie buffooneries are too much too much too extreme for sophisticated Broadway is providing a full length travel log wings over Ethiopia. The combination is an interesting one and should please the entertainment hunter. So they were combining this with something elegant in order to. <laughs> well, and that, that reviewer, I feel like missed the mark entirely. Um, just in terms of characterizing Gracie as an idiot or a nitwit. Yeah. No, dude. Okay. So. Here's something else I wrote down. Gracie reminds me a little bit of Rose Nyland, played by Betty White in The Golden Girls. So that character was guileless, right? And sort of doe-eyed and always talked about St. Olaf and was sort of naive. Here's the thing. If you watch this movie, watch it on fucking mute. 
watch Gracie's eyes. She always is playing a different game than everyone else. She is on another level. She's, she's sophisticated in a way that is underappreciated because again, man, she is poking holes in the schemes of these dumbass men around her. So to simply call her an idiot is dismissive and does a disservice to both the acting and the character. Right. And, and so that's one thing I've never understood in, in people seeing her and not understanding that she's operating on a different level than anyone else. And it's not to say that that level is necessarily smarter, but it's different. And if you can get on that wavelength, it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that she unravels her father's dumbass plot so thoroughly and so quickly and basically lets him go live in poverty like and and basically eat his crow in this scheme. Yeah. There's a level of brilliance and sophistication to that that like Gracie may not even realize herself, but that exists because like very few other people could pull that off in the way that she does. Yeah. I think that I feel like Gracie I think her, the reception to her character has evolved over time because we exist to elevate it. Yeah, no, that's fair. This is not a. This is unfortunately not a situation where most intellectuals were pursuing comedy of this specific moment as something that should be elevated art. I think the Marx or even Brothers, examined like in great detail. Yeah, I think Marx Brothers are the closest you get to that of its time, and even then, you have reviewers of the era complaining about one not being better than the other uh, in terms of the the pictures that they made. Gracie's comedy, because it lasted, that's why we've dissected why did it last. Whereas all these other vaudevillians that are in the film, they're gone, they're gone. There's like, you know, I don't think we talk about Eddie Cantor a lot for a lot of reason because his act is so of its time that it only lasted in its time. Yeah. And that he is more of a museum piece to be put into Boardwalk Empire and not the same amount of panache that he existed. I think Al Jolson falls into this somewhat, but the reason that we remember him is because he's in the first big talking motion picture. And doing blackface. Yeah. Yeah. Al Jolson so, did that a lot. I, I mean, <laughs> wait, wait, if, if you're going to talk about Al Jolson as a cultural footnote, yes, it's because it's a big the first big talking feature. And it also happens to be blackface. So two sort of important markers of the era for different reasons. Yeah. And, and Jolson was, but Jolson was like a pop star in his era. Like he was a big act and I've, I'm not, I don't get it, but I know of people in my life. Who are big. I know there are people in my life who are big Jolson fans and I'm like, I just don't get it. And then they're like, then you won't ever get it. And I'm like, that's fair. <laughs> like, I just, that's fine. <laughs> Well, okay, so here's the other thing, though. And if go back and if you can find it, it, I mean, this is not readily available, but there was criticism of Mozart in his time for, you know, basically making music for rubes mm-hmm. is the way that they, they viewed it. They viewed his music as too bombastic and too almost like pop oriented with, with too much of a sensibility geared toward the common person. And his, his art was viewed not as high art. Over time, things that are different, things that stand out, they're going to get criticized initially. And I mean, that goes for food, too. Think about all the best food out there. It usually started as peasant food. 
Yeah. Or given the terrible history of this country, slave food, right? Where, you know, you're, you're, you're working with the scraps of animals or in the case of lobster, what were viewed as sea insects. But through poverty, through strife and through creativity, these foods become elevated. They become sought after. Yeah. So I think that's true of art, too, where you make really interesting and weird art for the masses. And some of it endures. And a lot of that's out of your control. But with someone like Gracie, yeah, you look at it. It's like, OK, look at this dumbass woman here, like not getting what she's supposed to be doing here. Right. And you go, no, you dingbat. <laughs> that's the genius of it. Yeah. This is a whole commentary on men and their dumb schemes. Yeah. And whether that was sort of overt in the motivation or not, I'll never know. But frankly, I don't care because once something exists for long enough, you can view it through any lens you want. And depending on how good your arguments are, they're going to be arguments that have credence. Yeah. And I feel like the intent, the, the intent is irrelevant from an artistic scheme. I got a whole master's thesis where that is my central argument. Yeah, and like I'll, I'll, I'll give you the short answer: it worked and it made the money. It's yeah. it's it's very much like it's a blunt answer, but it's the one that I think most listeners would realize, based on what we've been talking about. We're talking about people that, in a lot of ways, whether it's Gracie coming from ostensibly a showbiz background, or George growing up poor. You got into vaudeville because you had no other choice and or you really <laughs> wanted to be in it. And I think that the art that came out of vaudeville comes out of tradition that we examine more thoroughly afterward. Um, it's as simple as what we've talked about before in the WC Fields episode about art is never appreciated the moment you see it, it's always in retrospect. And we, we've had that talk about, you know, like not being on the bandwagon 15 years ago. And like, I think that, I think that when it comes to Burns and Allen, if it weren't for the fact that they were able to adapt their format for radio later on in the sitcom format, they would have fallen into obscurity. Sure. Television ultimately saved them not even radio did because television kept their legacy alive in reruns those reruns were constant and frankly i still see them pop up on me tv and huh. all those other channels that are like antenna and stuff like that where tv land is kind of like shuffed to the wayside of those 50s programs in favor of the 70s and 80s and 90s now because yeah. as we get older the things we saw as kids are now tv land material and the the benefit of television is that it kept Burns and Allen alive in the consciousness. And it also helps not unsurprisingly that George Burns's rev revival in the, in the seventies really cemented the legacy of Gracie because yeah. Gracie Allen died in 1964. Um, she had a lot of heart ailments by the end of her life. And it was among the many reasons why she left the team uh, at a certain point in 58, um, where it basically left George to fend for himself on television. Um, thankfully, George was a smart enough businessman to know to get into film uh, to t television production. One of the shows that he was the spearhead of because of his production company was Mr. Ed, which was a big hit um, at, the, at its I, time because it's a talking I, horse. <laughs> I, I watched that so much as a young kid on Nick at Night. Mm-hmm. 
Of course you um, did. Be- yeah, I mean, we had cable, and so I I was watching a ton of Nick at Night. When I I don't know why, but I mean, I just this is why we're friends, right? I mean, yeah, I was watching <laughs> Mr. Ed and the Donna Reed Show and uh, Make Room for Daddy, and you know all, all those like old time shows. I did not remember that George Burns was a producer on that. Well, it's his production company that he had formed for television, primarily for Burns and Allen, but he got into other vested interests. The Bob Cummings show was also his. Um, He, George's career, like the closest he got to doing this act again was Wendy and me, which is a sitcom he created with Connie, with Connie Stevens playing the Gracie role. Um, And, it doesn't work. They tried doing George Burns, just the George Burns show, where you had pretty much everybody from the cast except for Gracie, and it didn't work. They dropped it pretty quick. Yeah. When he gets the resurgence in the 70s because of the Sunshine Boys and the Oscar win, which also, quite frankly, it's kind of a misnomer because he was also making a comeback on the stage, too. George yeah. was always a comedian's comedian. He could make Jack Benny laugh doing anything, which most people could make Jack Benny laugh. It was pretty fucking easy. But George was able to make other comedians laugh as well. You can hear him in Friars Roast where he is just on fire. And the that paid off because his experience in show business made him an elder statesman at a time where 30s and 40s comedy was getting a resurgence in the 70s. The Marx Brothers benefited from this greatly, especially Groucho. Um, Zeppo could have cared less. Um, you have the the entire legacy of those teams coming back into the forefront because a new generation is discovering them. And the counterculture has a lot to do with that in certain places. George is his establishment that works. And he never forgot Gracie. He never forgot how he got where he got. He married, he, he, I found my act and I married her is a, is a constant phrase out of his mouth. He wrote, he wrote quote unquote, but I do think a lot of that writing in quotes is sincere. And most of it is his own Gracie, a love story because he loved that woman. Yeah, he would visit her grave at least once a month for the rest of his life. And when he died, he got put in a position in the plot, um, the cremated plot, where Gracie got top billing. She never that love never died, and because that love never died, the act never died. Right, Grace. When Gracie passed, it just meant that. George had to continually remind people about it, even as he became God and as he became uh, uh, Al Lewis in the Sunshine Boys. He had to remind people this is where it started. And I think one of the big legacies of Here Comes Cookie, in addition to all of the things we've discussed from its filmmaking acumen, is that really this is an ideal time capsule in which to witness Burns and Allen on the cinema front. Because... It's easy to access their radio shows. It's very easy to access the television shows now. Um, These films aren't readily available beyond the DVD copies that were reprinted in the early 2000s. Um, There's no real good Blu-ray transfer of any of these. Um, But they are valuable records of what the film industry was doing to make ends meet during the Depression, where they knew they could find a hit, and... It's another good example of how Paramount was at the forefront of comedy films. 
they had W.C. Fields. They had Burns and Allen. At one point, they had Jack Benny, even though they didn't know what the fuck to do with him. Um, they had the Marx Brothers. They had Carol Lombard at many given points. This is a company that excelled in comedy, and this is one of the many reasons why. Um, they understood how much room to give these guys, whether it was George and Gracie, Jack Powell, this drummer, um, uh, even if it was Norman C. McLeod and his direction. He stayed with that company for a long time, and a lot of his films still shine through in those collections of W.C. Fields and Burns and Allen and Bob Hope. So, mm. I mean, I wanted to ask you, John, before we wrap up, like, what's a takeaway and how would you pitch this movie to people? Because we've kind of talked about it, a whole array of things in it, but at the center of it, like, why would you recommend this movie to anybody? First of all, I'd say <laughs> if you want to get a snapshot of old Hollywood, you could do worse than a movie that's 68 minutes. So the economy uh, of this movie is quite good. Uh, secondly, if, if you want to get a sense, I, I don't think this is the best showcase of George Burns, not, not by far. But what I would say is, if you want to get a showcase of Gracie Allen really doing her thing and really showing to the men what she's capable of in a subversive way, this is a terrific showcase for her. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not mired in the trappings of, you know, normal sitcom horse shit where, you know, with, with any sitcom, you sort of have to deal with a lot of really like almost laborious exposition um, in, in terms of setting up each plot. It's like, Oh, George, your boss is coming over for dinner. Like you can kind of, dispense with that. And it's this nice self-contained story where Gracie gets to showcase a lot of things in a short amount of time. And beyond that, man, checking out some of these vaudeville acts. Yeah. This is, that, a I mean, you, you, you've got the drummer here. You've got um, the sharpshooter, the bicycle, the sharpshooter, the bicyclists. You've got a lot of really fun stuff and it all comes at you in just over an hour. So it's and and there will be moments where you will laugh really really hard. Yeah. I certainly did. I saw this for the first time, and uh, it was it was well worth it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I I have a a caveat to that based on watching those vaudeville acts. There's something that I realized last night, late at night, as I was getting ready for bed, because I was trying in vain to find out more about these vaudeville actors. I went ahead and purchased the Vaudeville Encyclopedia by Anthony Slide. I looked through all the newspapers I could find. I couldn't find anything definitive to tell their story. Not like I, I found maybe one of our names in Anthony Slide's en encyclopedia because not everything was documented then. And no. there's a lesson I think you take away from today's film, which is we have a an advantage with the internet where as far as education is concerned, it's very easy to assume that you can have access to any piece of information you've ever wanted ever. Uh, I would want to use this episode as an example of that's bullshit because when it's all said and done, 
the information is only available if somebody absolutely wanted that information and made an effort to acquire it and then distribute it. Jack Benny, Bob Hope, George Burns, Gracie Allen, these had staples because they had acquired fandoms over the years. Jack Powell, he's known as a drummer for drummers, if you read if I'm reading it correctly. There's no biography on these guys and and not everybody deserves a biography let's get that out of the way like not every not every act was successful i don't know the figures of what these big time vaudeville acts were pulling what i do know is is that when you don't have a centralized base of knowledge for these things that happened yesterday it's not just the lessons that you miss it's also it's it's also you never know what figure is going to inspire you, and you don't know if that kind of drumming is something that's going to inspire you to do something down the line. And I think it's kind of a shame that there wasn't better record keeping back then to keep track of all of these. We've got access to Jack Benny's vaudeville history because there's been enough active interest, and he was a big enough star in vaudeville to acquire that stuff. Not all of these guys have that same story to tell. And so I think the lesson that I impart to people is, is that when it comes to film history in particular now, don't assume you have access to all of this stuff. It's not all relatively available, especially when this film's not available for streaming. And especially yeah. when all of the people that are contained within it, the only ones you're going to know are the two people who lived in that love nest, cozy and warm. This is not... This is not a situation when it comes to Golden Age Hollywood. You're not going to know everything because unless you look for it, it's going to go away. I found through desire to know more about Jack's film career, I found stories about Jack's film career that people just assumed didn't exist in the Benny fandom because nobody bothered to look. And it's not like it's not to their detriment or their fault. It's just that there was no reason to look through this. And it needs to become a little bit more, to my mind, normalized to pursue this stuff for the sake of posterity, especially as we're getting toward 100 years since the the, the first time people would have seen a movie like The Public Enemy. Um, right. And like, I, I think that that's going to be the important thing going forward is that if you don't keep better records of this stuff and make it accessible to people that knowledge goes away and that's to the detriment of art and culture that's that's a detriment to an art to art and culture that is frankly needed not to say that like what was coming out today is garbage it's not but it does but it falls in line with everything else if you don't take care of it it goes away um and i think that it I think it's a testament to this film still existing that we have evidence of what vaudeville was or those Vitaphone shorts or any film that deals with vaudeville. Like it's the last record we have because there was nothing else to give it. And one of its valuable assets is that it gives you a glimpse at a time before radio and television and film. It shows you what people went to do every Saturday night or Sunday night or Mondays and Wednesdays during the matinee. And that's kind of like the beautiful part of it. And I'm sure that's well how George looked at it when he made that movie. So yeah. on, be, on, on that note, John, thank you so much for chatting with me again on, on Vaudeville because we did with WC and now we did it with Burns and Allen. 
you're always welcome back, and I want you back. Maybe we'll maybe we'll finally break out a, a certain wooden dummy and uh, bring back WC for them to fight. <laughs> maybe um, I've got uh, I've got a couple other ideas I'm willing to pitch you. Ooh. So, um, but we'll uh, we'll talk about that. Let's let's wrap this one up. Yeah, before absolutely. we do that, um, p- please remind the audience where they can find you all over the internet sphere. So, John of All Trades is my show. Uh, Mr. Eastman here has been a guest on my show, so you can check that out. Hear him talk about all sorts of things, this podcast, old Hollywood directing, and a ton more. Mm-hmm. That's at johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N of alltrades.us. I have more than 350 total episodes, so there will be something for everyone in there. I talk to people from all across the employment spectrum. Social media, the handle is the same. It's J-O-A-T-Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Let me think. Uh, I am on every podcatcher. So if you want to subscribe, hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, take a minute, leave a rating. And if you got another minute, leave me a quick review. Do the same for the yesteryear Ballyhoo review. Oh, thank you. Because I normally don't ask for that. (laughs) Well, this is the lifeblood of podcasting in many ways. Yeah, that's star rating. (laughs) Those types of things... You, there's not there's nothing you can do about it and you don't understand how they play into the algorithm, but I'm told they do help. So anything you can do, help us spread the word. We love bringing content like this to you. And you know, we're a couple of independent guys, much like old vaudevillians mm-hmm. doing this for the love. Yeah, absolutely. I love that sentiment. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, and that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back end. Uh, on the next couple of episodes, there might be a little bit of a break because there's going to be some happenings at the Benny Convention, um, which will have already happened by the time this episode comes out. But uh, coming up, you are going to hear a talk about The Lost Weekend, uh, Billy Wilder's harrowing film about alcoholism from 1945, with my guests, uh, the boys from Switch the Envelope, are coming aboard that show. Additionally, I can confirm that Smokey and Kev will be returning to the Ballyhoo. Kev has definitely been confirmed to talk about the body snatcher by the Val Luton production by Bob Wise. We're basically combining his two episodes into one big blockbuster. Smokey is undetermined, but he might be bringing a friend. I don't know. We'll have to see how the cards play out with that one. Um, And there's much more coming up. But until all of that, and until next time, folks, say goodnight, Gracie. Good night. <laughs> and now, here are George and Gracie. Oh, George, just wait till you hear who our guest star is going to be next week. Who? Paul Lucas. Oh, he's wonderful. Oh, sure, he just won the Academy Award. The Oscar. Yeah. You know, George, I think you ought to have an Oscar. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's too bad they only give them to actors. <laughs> Good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Yeah.